0: Watch it because you will get the wasp fans onto you. I
1: mean, (laughs) they're very beautiful. But, I mean, I I did read a book. In fact, you love wasps? (laughs) Uh, No, I wouldn't go that far. I'm Elizabeth Flux. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month, we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest.
2: This month, we're reading The Science of Discord, 3, Darwin's Watch.
1: Don't da win some, do lose some. <laughs> and our guest is science and fiction writer, chemist and editor, Dr. Kat Day. Welcome, Kat.
0: Hi there. Hi. We,
1: we don't often have international guests, so uh, for context listener... It is quite late in the evening for Kat and it is very early in the morning for Liz and myself. Um, but we're, we're, we're all here. We're ready to go. I hope, I assume. Um, Kat, how are you doing?
0: Yeah, I'm good. It is, uh, very hot here. And as I understand it, quite cool where you are. So we're, <laughs> we're having a bit of a temperature gradient between our two, uh, our two locations, but, um,
2: yeah, I've got yeah. a blanket. Yeah. I'm
1: wearing a woolly hat.
2: Uh, I feel like this time difference is entirely appropriate for the book
1: that we're doing, but we'll get into that because we should learn more about our guests first up. We should. We should. So you kind of got best known, I think, for writing a chemistry blog.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a bit of a complicated route that I have taken. So I did my chemistry PhD. I worked as a web designer for a couple of years, trained as a teacher And then I started getting into science writing and I started writing my blog called The Chronicle Flask. I started picking up more and more writing work, editing work, and eventually I quit teaching. And these days I work as a medical editor. It's just twisty, turny, windy (laughs) career path that doesn't make very much sense, probably.
1: (laughs) Welcome to the modern world. I feel like the authors of this book would have something to say about this. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I think it's a perfectly good way to live your life yeah. and how exciting, like to have done all those different things. You also no stranger to the world of podcasting.
0: That is true because I am also the assistant editor at pseudopod, which is the horror podcast, um, tentacle of escape artists. <laughs> So yeah, yeah. Pseudopod is amazing. I mean, I would say that. Obviously, I would say that. But uh, please go and <laughs> listen to our episodes because we put out some amazing episodes. We get some really wonderful stories. I know sometimes people think, oh, I'm not, you know, horror. I'm not sure. But I think our output is really, you know, I think it's just a really interesting mix of stories that we put out. So we have just some great, great things. So yeah, please go and check them out.
1: Yeah, it just really covers a gamut of different sort of horror genres. And and audio horror is a whole thing unto itself. Like, you could be really creepy without having to be, like, gory or awful. It's great.
0: Yeah, I mean, we do sometimes have episodes where we feature a certain amount of gore, I guess. But we don't do anything that's kind of jump scary or anything like that. Mm. That's not our thing. It's more subtle, kind of subtly disturbing, thought-provoking, uh, you know, here is a story, and underneath that, can you see how it's reflecting on the world kind of thing, which I just love, which kind of fits in with Terry Pratchett, doesn't it? Because that's what he was doing all the time. So uh, yeah. it, it all it all comes together, really, in the end. Yeah.
1: Speaking of Pratchett, how did you come to read his stuff?
0: You know what? I asked my mum about this because I was trying to remember, but she couldn't remember any better than me. But I know that she gave me The Colour of Magic and the Light Fantastic. And I think I was about 14. And I think it was about 1989, which is a very long time awesome.
1: ago. I, um, I love this because this is very similar to my story. <laughs> yeah. mm.
0: So this is obviously is a time before the idea of young adult literature sections in bookshops. Mm. They, they didn't exist. So obviously you could buy children's books and then you could buy adult books. And there wasn't really that much in the middle. So mm. I think she was looking for books for me and she just picked them up because of the Kirby covers, huh? because of those Josh Kirby covers, right? Because they had those bright cartoon like covers and she thought, oh, that looks interesting, you know? So she gave me those to read and I read those and I liked them. And then she picked up The Dark Side of the Sun and Strata. So I read those as well. And I'm probably pretty sure that is the way round I did it, because I remember noticing the reference to the Discworld in Strata, reading that and thinking, oh, oh, I see. <laughs> right. You know, so, <laughs> I, yeah, I was aware that those books had come first, but then I, I was like, oh, right, yeah, oh, now it's all coming together. And then, obviously, Equal Rights, which is, I, I think, if you asked me, I'd say Equal Rights is my favourite, just because I think it's the hmm. book where the disc world that we came to know really comes to life. And then actually my mum ended up buying most of the books for me just in order. So every time a new book came out, she would just buy it and give it to me.
2: <laughs> it's so a dream.
0: Yeah. So I have got them all on a shelf. The first few are paperbacks. And then after that, it's mostly hardbacks. And they are in pretty much as they were published so it's a mismatch of just kind of different covers and different styles and all that kind of thing. And actually, I just really love that because it's, it's like a history. It's like a little timeline of how the books appeared, you know, and, and what they were like. And, you know, when it switched from the, the Josh Kirby covers to the Paul Kidby covers and all that kind of thing. So it's all in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Picked up the carpet people in when it was reprinted in 1992. And somewhere along the line, read the Bromelia trilogy and the Johnny Maxwell series. So yeah, I mean, they're just, all, yeah, I've just got, got this massive shelf in my lounge that just says every <laughs> single book in publication order.
2: It has to be a really long shelf.
0: <laughs> it is. It is. It goes yeah. all the way along the room. We've got a big bookshelf that goes all the way along the room and it is the, the length of the room and it's all Terry Pratchett books, novels, and a few other bits and pieces like the odd jigsaw. And uh, maps, scripts, the the Stephen Briggs scripts. Um, yeah, it's all just there sitting on the shelf.
2: <laughs> Would nice. love to see a picture if you're happy to share one at some point, because that sounds amazing.
0: I might have to dust it, but yeah. We'll <laughs> and send it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, we just, we love a good shelfie, you know. But it does, yes. I mean, it sounds like you're going to have to do a panorama to fit it all in.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes, it, I might have to. It, it won't fit in a photo. Okay. I might have to video it. Can you,
2: can you even look at it all at once, or do you have to sort of? <laughs> well,
0: like, no, I can. Yeah, I can <laughs> see it from here, but I it won't, it won't, it won't come out on a photo for sure. Yeah.
2: Mm.
1: <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, that's oh, very cool. That is very cool. We should get onto the book we're here to discuss today. We should, um, which <laughs> is of course it is a lot of book. <laughs> it is a lot of book. Um, but I think as as when we did the second one, I think we we kind of realised that. The, we, we can't get into every bit of science that they discuss, although this one's going to be a little bit easier to do, um, for various reasons. But, um, but we, we will sort of summarize that for you listeners. So don't expect us to go into every, every <laughs> nook and cranny. We just don't have time, even in a long podcast like this. But, um, but we should start as we traditionally do with a reading of the blurb. Round world is in trouble again. And this time it looks fatal. Having created it in the first place the wizards of Unseen University feel vaguely responsible for its safety. They know the creatures who lived there escaped the impending Big Freeze by inventing the space elevator. They even intervened to rid the planet of a plague of elves who attempted to divert humanity onto a different time track. But now, it's all gone wrong again. Victorian England has stagnated, and the pace of progress has slowed right down. Unless something drastic is done, there won't be time for anyone to invent spaceflight, and the human race will just be another layer in the bedrock. Why, though, did history come adrift? Was it Sir Arthur J. Nightingale's dismal book about natural selection? Or was it Mr. Charles Darwin, whose best-selling Theology of Species made it impossible to refute the divine design of living creatures? Either way, it's no easy task to change history back, as the wizards discover, to their cost. He's got to write a different book. And who stopped him writing it in the first place? What went wrong? The answers to these and many other questions lie within Darwin's Watch, where yet again Terry Pratchett, Ian Stewart, and Jack Cohen have created a winning combination of science and compelling Discworld fiction. Well, we'll be the judge of that, uh, <laughs> um Thank you very much. Uh, well, uh, it is weird that it's... Oh, it's not weird, but it does feel a bit like... Another go at a similar plot to last time, but I think different. And I look, I'm just going to come out and say this up front. I was a bit worried because I hadn't read the third and fourth ones before. And when I came to this one after having read the second one, I was a bit worried because I did not like the second one very much. We, we talked about this a bit on the podcast and a bit more in our subscriber-only bonus podcast. But whereas the first one was a sort of excuse to visit lots of different kinds of science, the second one seemed so focused on having a barrow to push. Like, he, we have this idea we really want you to agree with. We're going to talk about it constantly. Uh, and I felt sort of went off the rails a bit and was a bit mean. Like, this was something we sort of discussed. It felt, it felt quite mean in the way that they talked about some things in the second book. So, I was worried about this one. And I think it does start a little bit with that tone in the science section. But it did win me over, I will say. Uh, I actually enjoyed this a lot more than the second one. So I, I'll i just say it up front because some people don't want to wait till the end to find out <laughs> whether we like the book or not. Uh, are there any general <laughs> things you want to say about it before we get into the nitty gritty?
0: I just want to quickly flag up Chapter 20 because oh, yeah. it, has, it has that anecdote in it where Jack Cohen, who is a biologist – is in oh, yeah. in the audience uh, where yes. some some ast- astronomers are talking about uh, life in the universe, aren't they? And he stands mm-hmm. up and says, "What would you think of three biologists discussing the physics of the black hole at the centre of the galaxy?" <laughs> and everyone <Yeah>. applauds. <laughs> and uh, and I, and I'm kind of reading that, thinking, uh, "Yeah, this is a book that has a lot of biology and genetics and evolution in." And I am a chemist. <laughs> So I just – I feel like I should apologise right up here, right start. I'm I'm not an evolutionary biologist.
1: (laughs) No, but you've done a lot of science communication, particularly in your blog, and I think there's a huge amount of value in having someone who is a science communicator but not in the field being communicated by this book because uh, then you're in a better place to judge are they doing a good job because if you already know the material, so to speak, (laughs) like I find – so, when I started out as a comedian, I did solo shows about science, and the second one I ever wrote, out of three, I only did three of them, but the second one I ever wrote was all about evolution and covers a lot of the same ground. I, I, when I was reading this, I was like, why didn't I read this when it came out in 2005? And I was like, oh, yeah, that was the year I was writing my own comedy show about evolution, and I didn't want to inadvertently steal any jokes or find any of my own jokes in the book and go, oh, no, I can't <laughs> use this joke now, which is why I didn't read it at the time. Uh, even though Like I bought Darwin
2: it. and Wallace.
1: Yeah, like Darwin and Wallace. I could have written to Ian and Jack and Terry and said, look, I'm um, I'm about to do a comedy about evolution. Do you want to publish for?" <laughs> there was absolutely. I mean, this is a show, just for context, this is a show that I did at the Adelaide Fringe Festival on one night to an audience of three, two of whom were my parents. Uh, so. Um, I would have come if I'd known you then. Yeah, you would have. And you would have had a good time. Cause it wasn't just about the theory. It was also about the life of Charles Darwin and how he got to the point of, of writing the book. So there's a lot of similar stuff. Although interestingly, these authors and myself did not pick out the same weird coincidences of how he got there. <laughs> so that's, oh, that how was, how many amazing. weird coincidences? Are there? Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot. I mean, if you go looking, right. And this is something the book talks about. So I don't think you need to worry about that. Kat. You, you, I've, <laughs> I've got the. Not a professional scientist have done some science communication about this topic angle covered. And you've got the very definitely have been uh, a well qualified science communicator. <laughs> and I've just- got the
2: dropped out of medical school just like he did. Um, so there you know.
0: we go. Yeah. Okay. We're, sorted. we're fine. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I think, I think, I think we're going to be good. Uh, listening, hopefully you've listened. You, you don't really need to have listened to our episodes about the previous two books, but just so you're across the format. The way these science Discworld books work is they have alternating chapters where the odd-numbered chapters, in this case, are fiction set in the Discworld with the Wizards of Unseen University who have created our universe or a version thereof in a bottle, essentially. It's actually in a globe, but we'll call it a universe in a bottle, and feel like they have to look after it. So, there's fiction chapters with them, and then those alternate with real-world popular science chapters discussing topics related to that fiction. Um, and in the first one, you know, they created the round world, they explored it. And so the science chapters were kind of about whatever happened to be related to the thing that they were looking at and that covered a lot of different ground. There was cosmology. There was a little bit of evolution. Um, there was, um, there was, all, well, there was all kinds of stuff in the first one. Um, and then the second one was very much about human development and the idea that the authors had that what makes us human is that we tell stories and how important that was and the kinds of stories that we tell. And I and as I've said, I don't think that was as good. And then this one is a bit more, it's a bit of a mix. Like they've got a thing that they want to talk about, but there's also a lot of other science that they discuss along the way. And it kicks off with um, a scene in Round World of Charles Darwin being visited by this weird congregation of beetles, which seems to take a sort of semi-human form. So we already know things are going weird. And then we cut to Unseen University and Rincewind coming in. Because Rincewind, this is his last – I'm sad about this. This is his last appearance pretty much. I think he's got mm. a cameo in Unseen Academicals, but I don't, otherwise I don't think we see him again. But he, He's uh, probably he, happy
2: about that though. He, yeah. Probably gets, yeah he's probably having a good time.
0: He's in he, – he, no, he's got quite a few big bits in Unseen Academicals. Does it, oh, he? Oh, yeah, I guess he does. Yeah. It's been a
1: long time since I've read it. I'll be rereading yeah. it in the podcast. No, oh, well, that's he does, good. He does. He does. That's a nice trait for us then. That yeah. is. I'll be happy yeah. to see him again Uh because it, he's he's not in this one very much. He's very sort of backseat, whereas in the first one he's in it quite a bit and in the second one he was quite important. In fact, I think it's one of my favourite books for him because he really comes into his own when they're dealing with the elves. And here he's got some great bits, particularly towards the end, but he's not in it that much Um because of fiction chapters. This is something else I, I think is worth mentioning up front. Fiction chapters are very short in this one. Um, the science chapters mm. seem to be usually at least twice as long, if not three or four times as long as the fiction ones.
2: But I found that, um, so just to say up front also, I did not love the second one and I seemed to, every time I pressed a footnote, they're like, refer to book two. And I was like, well, I have entirely purged that book from my memory and remembered nothing <laughs> about it. So, um, sure, footnote, I will, um, I will trust you that this happened. But mm. this one I felt, as Ben was saying, it's a good balance between The first one, the second one, where there's an idea that's being explored, but also the science ties in nicely. And in the last one, I found the science a bit full on at times, but but that's perhaps because I wasn't engaging as well with the book overall. So I didn't sort of feel like it all connected up nicely here. I like that there was a lot more storytelling element to it because I feel like that helped me. Pick it up and learn it more rather than sort of going, this is, they're trying to teach me a thing and then resisting that. It was kind of like, oh, here's an interesting story. Oh, I've learned something along the way, which is kind of, I think, science communication done very effectively. Or if their audience is specifically me, I think it's done very effectively.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Is it worth having a reminder of lies to children?
1: Oh, yeah. Because that
0: comes up quite a lot.
1: mm. Yeah, yeah. What's your take on that, on the lies to children? Because you've been a teacher.
0: Yes. Funny you should ask. (laughs) No, yeah, because I know I get this exactly because I taught a lot of A level chemistry, which for the non Brits is chemistry age uh, 17, 18. So higher level, higher level chemistry, but not degree level chemistry.
1: Right. BCE or HSC level for Australian listeners.
0: Yeah, probably. And this sort of idea of lies to children, which is. So the the way they explain lies to children is it is the things that you tell children about how the world works that are not strictly true, but they are true enough. (laughs) And (laughs) the children need that kind of version of the explanation in order that they can later understand the more difficult and hopefully slightly more accurate explanation. So they they call it lies to children, and they say we know people get a little bit upset about the word lies, but it's we don't mean it in a derogatory sense. We mm. mean it in a light-hearted, jokey way. We're not we're not sort of suggesting that you're really lying. It's just that y- you do necessarily have to oversimplify things, and mm. it, it did come up for me as a chemist a lot because we obviously naturally we talk about particles and atoms a lot in chemistry (laughs) there's a surprise and you know you you cannot teach atomic orbital theory to 11 year olds so obviously (laughs) so what you have to do is you start with this idea that everything is made of particles and they're like little balls and then you know you get up a little bit older and you start talking about electrons and protons and neutrons and you say, OK, well, the electrons have to go round the nucleus. There's a nucleus in the middle and the electrons have to go round the outside. And uh, the electrons go in layers. That's sort of a bit true. It's not exactly strictly exactly like that. But, you know, again, it's like, it's a lie to children. But it helps because then later when you say, all right, energy levels, <laughs> atomic orbitals, you know, it, it kind of it allows they've, they've got something to hook that on. So it just allows you to build up those concepts in layers. And so this is what the authors in this book are sort of saying. They say the profession of liar to children is a teacher and that they are the writers of li- <laughs> liars to, chil- of, of, to children because they, they're writing, they're, they're the sort of writers, the science communicators. So yeah, it's an important idea. It's that kind of, I'm not, I'm not lying to you, but it's not, it's more complicated than this. But this is close enough <laughs> mm. do they yeah. do you think they do a lot of that in this book well i'm not an evolutionary biologist so i'm not strictly sure the bits on geology look pretty solid um <laughs> <laughs> uh, i
2: was
1: yeah. they rocked in fact
2: yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: uh, uh, now now the podcast yeah. kicked off oh no
2: it's got layers there was a
0: little bit, actually, where they were talking about zirconium, where I kind of blinked a bit and went, hmm. So, yeah, I think there probably is a little mm. bit of lying to children going on to just smooth off the edges. Uh, because I think you can't get into into everything at sort of really super high level and also make it a popular science book, Can you just can't.
1: Yeah, particularly not if you're going to cover as much ground as they want to cover in this book. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Hmm.
2: There was a lot of comparing theories about um, time travel and the way that that all works. So it felt like that was probably a bit smooth over there. But also, it was they're like, these, these are not theories, sorry, hypotheses. Um, you can <laughs> keep
1: that straight because the book's very strong on that. <laughs> well, look, let's let's get into a little bit chapter by chapter. So in this first fiction chapter, very just establishes something weirds going on with Darwin in the round world. Whereas meanwhile, in the unseen university, they're having their their great discussion at their meeting about how they're going to build a much better and bigger, very big thing <laughs> than those idiots at Braseneck College <laughs> who I don't, I don't think we ever actually, maybe we meet them in um, in Unseen Academicals. Unseen
0: Academicals. It does. All of that comes back in Unseen Academicals.
1: I'm looking forward to reading that. Yeah. At this point in the book's like, we've not met them. We don't know who they are except that they're those jerks. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're the rivals. That was a lot of fun. And then, yeah, Rincewin's like, oh, something's gone wrong. And the thing that's gone wrong is he's noticed that, you know, the humans on the round world have all died off because there's a lot of themes that recur. Like they're really big on the space elevator, which is the way that the humans get off the planet before it is hit by an asteroid and, and destroyed or uh, made uninhabitable for a time at least. Fred loves the space elevator. Just keeps putting them in his books. I know. Because I've been editing our episode about the long Mars and the long Earth series has so much of the stuff from the science of Discworld in it. I won't spoil it for you listening, but there's, <laughs> yeah. there's more than one thing that crops up in both of those books. It was weird, but yeah, it's, it, they're, they're very, they love the space elevator. Yeah. But they didn't build it. They've been flattened by a meteorite or something. So they know something's wrong. And last time it was elves messing up human development. Partly like in the end, they needed the elves, but it was a whole thing. And this time they don't know what's causing it. So that's our first fiction chapter that sort of sets the scene. There's some good gags even in that first one. I particularly, yeah, particularly in, like, the the very big, <laughs> the very big. Very, thing. Yeah, that <laughs> was.
0: The great big thing and the very big thing, yeah.
1: An even yeah, bigger yeah. thing. <laughs> Quite big thing. Yeah. Oh, oh that's So good. So good. But then the first fiction chapter, which is titled Paley's Watch, also is, is very scene setting. And this is where I, like, when I started reading it, I was like, oh, no, is this going to be, like, the second one? Because it's. It starts out by going, here's a conversation from American radio about how Darwin Mm. must have been an idiot because he didn't get a Nobel Prize. And we'll explain why these people are wrong. And I'm like, look, (laughs) you're not wrong in any particular part to point this out. But it seems like you um, you just want to be mean to some people who, you know, do believe some things that are harmful. But a lot of them believe them from ignorance or because they've been misguided rather than because they're, you know, malicious. So it seemed a bit mean. And I'm glad that this tone does not stick with the book for most of it, but I did find that that reminded me of the second book, this opening salvo in this uh, first science chapter.
2: Yeah, it did have a time, but not as bad from what I remember, which is not much of the second one.
0: They use it, don't they? Because I, I think this is a point that they come back to, isn't it? That sometimes the obvious explanation or what seems to be the most obvious explanation is hmm. not the in fact often in science that is not the correct explanation. So what they're saying is, oh well, you know the the conversation here is, well, he didn't even get a Nobel Prize, and yeah. the point is that he died before Nobel prizes were awarded. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that's why, like, he just you know he wasn't going to be nominated because he was dead, <laughs> and yeah. they're just you know they're just making that. I think they're just using it really to make that point mm. that. Sometimes you can look at a thing and people often do do this. They look at a thing and think, well, it must have happened because of this. And particularly with evolution, it's tempting, isn't it, to say, well, something's changed. And Mm. and we're seeing that those changes are being passed on to offspring. And so it must have happened in this way. I mean, there's not to get into sort of future chapters too much, but they kind of talk about those ideas and actually it turns out it didn't work like that. It wasn't like that. You know, that the obvious explanation is the wrong one. There's a sort of mm. underlying, more complicated thing that you need to get to by poking around through a bit more information. So I think that's what they're doing in that first little bit there.
2: Yeah. It's like an Occam's
1: eraser. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't do too much of it. I think just because it was front loaded with a bit of, you know, haha, are these creationists kind of dumb energy? It felt like, oh, is this going to be a mean book like the last one felt a bit mean? And it wasn't. It, it didn't stick with that too much. And I think, yeah, you're right. They they do use it to make a point. And then they kind of segue from that into, and people have been persuaded by some very good arguments that n- nevertheless were wrong as well, when they talk about, and that, this isn't the chapter where they go too much into detail about it, but they introduce the idea of Paley's watch, which is the argument from design. You know, you find a watch on the pavement you have to infer there is a watchmaker. It couldn't have just arrived there by itself. Um, they have some very funny things to say about that later on, which I quite enjoyed. But this is a scene setting kind of chapter. And then, I, again, I can't remember how we did this last time, but I think, you know, we can't. We, we probably can't just go chapter by chapter because there's too no. much stuff. Mm. But if we think about the fictional kind of uh, journey, what happens is Ponder Stibbins. Who we all love, <laughs> Everyone, everyone's favourite <laughs> nerd wizard. He uh, he gives a not a PowerPoint presentation, but a, an actual old school slideshow. Because there's the whole joke of one of the slides is upside down, which I'm sure will make no sense to a modern audience who only knows PowerPoint. <laughs> but I was I quite enjoyed that detail
2: and the blank slide to make a point that was just so uh, done done so well.
1: <laughs> Forgot about that. <laughs> yes, that was so good. Uh, but he gives this presentation. He's been working with Hex to figure out what's gone wrong. And they basically work out that the reason that humanity did not get off the planet and was squashed by uh, an asteroid is that Charles Darwin did not write The Origin of Species. He wrote another book called The Theology of Species, where he basically said all the same things, but didn't say, so life just kind of does this by itself, and instead said, so life does this with the guiding hand of God at every point. And it sort of unites everyone, scientists and, you know, they don't work out exactly how this works until later, but it kind of unites everybody from both science and religion who all then believe the same thing and don't really feel the need to argue with each other or change their minds about things, which is a, it, it's an interesting concept. Yeah, <laughs> violence is the answer yes. as like the core of the book. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and of course
0: they bring in Dawkins, don't they? They bring in mm, Richard they Dawkins,
2: the Reverend Dawkins.
0: Yes. Which yeah. I'm sure that Richard Dawkins thought was hilarious. Not I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> but it was, I mean, it, it's probably worth saying that this book is published in 2005. yeah. And hmm. Dawkins got himself into a bit of a mess after that. So when yeah. they wrote this, because <laughs> he's become quite a controversial character since, hasn't he? He said oh, a number yeah. of problematic things.
2: But at that time.
0: But at this time, it, it's... It's just a little gentle sort of joke that they've made the very prominent atheist a religious character, yeah. you know, yes. which is just a, a little bit hilarious. But then I think perhaps with modern eyes, it reads slightly differently.
1: <laughs> but yeah, yeah, maybe a little mm. bit. I think I think also you know there's that gag that even in a universe where everyone believes God had something to do with evolution. Richard Dawkins is still the voice of reason about that, which uh, I think, you know, particularly at the time it was published, you would. He's the one you would go to. I mean, his early books about evolution are really good. Mm-hmm. He just kind of ruined it uh, by being a jerk, <laughs> frankly. Yes. Anyway, they don't know why this has happened, why history has gone wrong. They don't know why Darwin has written the wrong book, but that's what they've got to try and fix And so, the rest of the book consists of them trying to fix that and being thwarted. To summarise that plot, and we'll get into some of the details later, but they figure out that there's 10 important things that have to happen in order for Darwin to write the book. So, they go into round world history with Hex's help and fix those things so that they go back on track. And almost as soon as they've done that, there are then two and a half thousand or more reasons why he hasn't written it. And they're like, what the- and Ridcully goes off his nut. He's like, this is not happening on our watch and they sent huh. every wizard in the, you know, <laughs> sorry, I yeah. didn't mean that hey. one. Uh, <laughs> no, they send, did it anyway. They sent everyone <laughs> from the university back in to fix all the thousands of things and eventually work out that it's the auditors of reality who are trying to make this universe a bit more orderly by removing humans from it.
0: They hate humans. They
1: really do. Oh, okay, do. Thanos.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah, <laughs> rough. Uh, and eventually they managed to defeat them, but along the way, accidentally bring Darwin into the Discworld, where he sees a few things that freak him out. <laughs> one of which is the God of Evolution, who mm. sneaks into Round World. He's the beetle Man at the start to try and you know claim credit, which is a part of the auditor's plan to disrupt his thinking and make him write the wrong book. And eventually they put things back on track. And it's all good. And that's a very high-level explanation, but I think the fiction chapters are so slight. I think we'll come back to some of the details where we want to reveal them, but that's, you know, an overview. And then in between, the science chapters explain those things. Chapter four is is the one that really gets into the weeds and explains the version of, not evolution, but of life's origins that Paley wrote about. The whole- um, Paley ontology. That-
0: I love- that is just such a good <laughs> title, isn't it? Paley Ontology. Yeah.
1: The chapter titles are so funny.
0: You think, surely someone must have thought of that before, but apparently yeah.
1: not. <laughs> I <just laughs> will do a whole book on that. <laughs> yeah. It's very good. I really like that chapter because they sort of break down a lot of the things that I end up talking about in my show as well. Um, so there's uh, Paley's Argument from Design, um, they talk about the the biases that it comes with. I really liked the bit in that chapter where they were talking about, uh, he thinks it's so important that if you find, a, you know, a watch, there must be a maker. But what about the watch's owner? Doesn't they don't he doesn't talk about that? <laughs> yeah. And if you find a spider on the path, you don't go, Oh, someone must have dropped this spider and they own it. It's like, no, it's because you have already inherently biased expectations about different things in the world. So I thought that was a fun point.
2: Is that why no one ever returns my spider to lost and found? <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> yeah they don't infer an owner mm-hmm. oh, the spider I, that great.
0: I like the because is, is this the bit where they get into they kind of go because Paley says well you wouldn't think of it as just a rock that might have lain there forever and they immediately yeah. go rocks are cool <laughs> let's, <Yeah. laughs> let's talk about rocks for a few chapters and yeah. a few pages rather sorry and explain to you why rocks are actually awesome and stop dissing rocks
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: which is just really lovely
2: and yeah. just a fascinating thing that that's his, like, throw away. Oh, this is just a nothing, but it's actually, yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Rocks are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> no rock in the history of the world has just been there forever. Like, it got there somehow. Yeah. yeah. Have a bit more curiosity, Paley. <laughs> uh, yeah. thought that was great. Yeah.
2: And I also like that they're like, and then he concludes with the thing we all saw
1: coming from the beginning. I'm like, yes. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. People knew what it was about. Yeah. Um, mm. The next science chapter, chapter six, which is called Borrowed Time, talks about uh, the many worlds theory briefly. They come back to that later. The nature of time and time travel and how that changes in in the real world and in fiction, uh, how time travel works in the disk world. And they introduced the idea of um, Minkowski's space time. mm which they use again when they're talking about how you might actually build a time machine that works in the real world, or at least how how it might function from a theoretical physics perspective. And so there's a lot of big ideas.
0: Yeah. They get into warping space. It's that link to Star Trek, isn't it? That idea of building a, a warp drive.
2: Yeah. Oh, they get into it later, which is great.
0: Yeah like yeah, the yeah. the sheer amount of energy you would need to do it is just mind-bogglingly enormous. But there's yeah, also yeah. a lot of references in this chapter to thief of time. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff here about the procrastinators and slicing time and and you know and these ideas and all of that kind of thing and it all kind of comes together. And I love the fact that it all kind of comes together like that. You know that yeah. it all it all you sort of see it all fitting into one big nice picture. I like that. Yeah. Mm.
1: It was kind of missing from the second book from memory. There's not as much of it in there, but this one, like the first one does like to refer to the Discworld and uses Discworld stuff as examples, which I think is great because they know who their audience is for this book, right? It's, it's not people who don't know what Discworld is. So later on, when they're talking about set theory and they're introducing the idea that you can define what a number is by saying, well, it's a set of things when they're giving like an, an iterated example one of them is the elephants that hold up the disc world and you're like oh, yeah of course why wouldn't you use that and then <laughs> even when they're using like the seven colors they're like doesn't make any sense to have indigo and violet we're gonna shove octarine in here <laughs> don't the trolls have basically that counting system because they've got a
2: base four yes. number system mm-hmm. so they mm-hmm. they could be counted by elephants yeah that's yes. true
0: i never thought yeah. of that yeah. that's a great link yeah. this
1: <laughs>
2: Thank you.
0: <laughs> I mean, there's so many little things like that where you think, and Terry Pratchett knew that. There, there are, oh, yeah. I mean, I always smile every time I see a little reference to Redshift in, yeah. in any of his books because he liked to throw that in. You know, so every time anyone is traveling fast in his books, in Thief of Time, as the sweepers are moving faster and faster, slicing mm-hmm. time into smaller and smaller pieces, everything gets bluer and bluer and bluer. So I like those ideas. I just like, you know, mm. you think Terry, Terry Pratchett knew all this stuff and he just yeah. casually just tossed it in, you know, and most people probably it just, you just miss it. And then every now and then you sort of think, oh, my God, he knew that. <laughs> you it's know,
1: a, I think yeah. there's a weird sort of, I think there's a, a total wet mix of his writing of where stuff that he already knew that he just got in there somehow and then stuff that he discovered when he'd do all that because he did heaps of research for most of his books. Yeah. And he just find cool stuff and like go, yeah, that's going in the book. This is so cool. I'm going to put my own spin on it. There's evidence of that in this as well. And it's glorious. Yeah. One of the other things from chapter six. That I really like too was when they're talking about snakes and ladders. Cause I, as a, someone who's worked in game design, like snakes and ladders is like the most boring game you could possibly design. <laughs> like it's, it's fun when you're a child for like the first three times that you play it. And then once you realize that you have no control over what happens, it's just completely random. You go, Oh, I think I'll play a game where I get to make some choices instead. But the idea of quantum snakes and ladders where there's like this sort of probability cloud of where you're going to go. It's great. Actually, I tried to find if anyone had done any probability maps of snakes and ladders, and they have. Totally unrelatedly, someone else I know recently was um, deriding Monopoly, which is also heavily luck-influenced. And they and talked ruthlessness
2: about fact- and psychopathy influence. Well, yes, but they also talked about <laughs> the fact that
1: going first is a massive advantage in Monopoly, and at every player count, the first player has a much higher chance of winning than everyone else.
2: Look- reflects the underlying sort of morals of the game though, right? It's like if yes. you have a leg up in life, you you can get a Monopoly. But yeah.
1: Yeah. I think yeah. we'll be coming back to that when we get to the final chapters of this book, actually. Yeah. But yeah.
2: I haven't played Monopoly since school. I used to love Monopoly. And then all my friends one by one stopped um they refused to play it with me and I was like, uh-huh. why? And I'm now I understand. So Suddenly
0: enough, I, I, I was playing it the other weekend, literally the other weekend at a friend's house. Mm. And, um,
2: are you still friends?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we ended up, we kind of ended up at sort of 1 a.m. going, Oh, no, 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 right. That's it now. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, but the point that we were all, the point that we made at the start was that if you play Monopoly strictly by the rules, strictly by the rules, yeah, it's over a lot more quickly.
1: Yeah. And no one does
0: no yeah this is it the reason people have monopoly games that go on for for weeks is because they have all these sort of strange little rules you know every time you pay a tax you put it in the middle and then you get it if you land on free parking or you know all these little things which basically just end up extending the game (laughs) because everyone has too much money and everyone has too many houses and it just gets silly
1: yeah. It's like representative of something. but yeah. hmm. <laughs> Well, it is. It's like the idea that, you know, oh, if everyone had more money, then capitalism would be fine. It's like, no, it just lasts longer. The <laughs> downward spiral <laughs> takes longer. You know, it's not, it's worse. And the crash is bigger ways. at the end. Yeah, the crash is bigger because yeah. you go higher up. So you've got further to fall. Um. Yeah, it's it's awful. Interestingly, modern editions of Monopoly. It's still a terrible game. I don't like it. Um. And you should, if you haven't, if you don't haven't learned the history, listener of Monopoly, it's well worth reading up on. There's some great podcasts about it. I'll find a couple and link them in our episode notes. Uh, Because it started out in life as a game called the Landlord's Game, and it had two sets of rules. Because the point of it was to show that capitalism was not a great idea, but this other method of taxation and distributing money was much more equitable. And in the alternate set of rules, which did not become popular, you know, what happened was if you improved a property, everyone in the game benefited and it became a more cooperative kind of experience where someone still won, but everybody ended up with a, you know, something at the end. Whereas in the version that got popular, you trashed your friends. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and it's an interesting history. It's well worth reading about, but, um, the modern editions do have an extra set of rules, like not only, you know, the standard rules that nobody plays by because nobody learns from reading the rule book because everybody has played Monopoly, so they just teach it to other people and pass on their house rules. But the It's like some sort of evolution. No.
0: Yes, <laughs> yeah, it is. It very <laughs> much is.
1: Um, but the modern version has an extra dice, and it's got these special rules for Turbo Monopoly, <laughs> which is intended to make it go faster and be over ah. quicker. And I'm mm. like, if you have to modify your rules to make the game end quicker... <laughs> Maybe maybe people aren't having a great time. Um there's plenty of <laughs> other games you could play. Don't play Monopoly it's my it's
0: I didn't my know that. Message. That's I'm quite intrigued now though. I sort of want to get a copy.
1: <laughs> you
2: wanna play the other version? Yeah. Anyway, that's that's enough Monopoly. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yes.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Welcome to guess. our
1: Monopoly podcast. Yeah, oh I could do we could do a whole one. Uh but we won't. Mm. There's that and then chapter eight, like you were saying, comes back to that and talks about how if you take a Minkowski space time and Maybe it's not flat. Maybe it's it's curved. Then you can have closed time-like curves that move across its surface, which means you can have time travel. It is te- logically possible. But then, how do you make it happen? And they talk about, oh yeah, well, what if we, you know, make a time machine? And this was great. There's a there's a great book by I think it's Paul Davies called um, How to Make a Time Machine that was published probably oh, a bit earlier than this. I think probably late '90s, early 2000s, uh, which was just. Like that's, it was a very short book and it had a lot of illustrations, but it was just like how to build a time machine. And the version in that book was like, you get a, um, massive object that's massive enough. Very big thing that it won't become a black hole, but massive enough to have a big gravitational effect. And you set it rotating and then you fly into a, um, an orbit around it and you get accelerated past the speed of light and you come out before you went in. But like all of the ones in this book, it made the point that you can only ever go back in time to the point where it was first built. You can't use it to go back and visit the dinosaurs. So, basically, it's a shit time machine. <laughs> I don't want one. If I can't see dinosaurs, I don't want one. Yeah. But uh, th- I thought that was cool because th- this one had the other kind of time machine, which I think actually is also in the Davies book, which is uh, you make a wormhole with a black hole and a white hole. You link them together. You have to stick a bunch of you know exotic matter or something in the wormhole to stop it from collapsing. And then if you drag one end of the wormhole really fast- uh, because of how relativity works, the two ends of the wormhole are no longer synced in time, like the twins in the Twins Paradox. But when you go in one end, you come instantly out the other end. So you instantly go back in time or forward, I guess, if you can go the other way between the times linked by the wormhole. It was cool. And they went into a fair bit of detail about how you would have to do that. And I, I liked that chapter a lot. It was fun.
2: It was very cool. Um I was like, oh, yeah, I'm understanding this. This is great. I can see how this works. And then they're like, oh, and then the black hole end is zigzagging. And then I couldn't stop imagining one of those, like, car dealership balloon men that's, like, just gone like, <laughs> Sky like this. <laughs> and I was like, it's made this very serious thing quite silly in my mind, but I did really like it. It just really shows that there's that period of time where they kept making space movies, like Interstellar and Gravity and stuff, where they're clearly, like, tapping into all of this and like really into it for like a five-year period and sort of dried up for a while
1: but mm. yeah yeah and then the sort of um the space movies after that have been a bit more gritty you know like the martian where it's like there's no time travel or anything like that and they it's very they take a long time to get to mars like it's it's very realistic real world rather than something like interstellar where it's like yeah. you we know, go to the end of the universe find a black hole and weird stuff happens. I won't spoil it.
2: I'm going to stand behind a bookshelf and explain the plot over and over and over again until you've understood it seven times. But yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: Not a fan, Liz.
2: (laughs) When I was watching it, I'm like, this is good. But then they kept hammering the same point home and I'm like, no, I understand it. And then they still, yeah. So I felt like it over explained its thing or like reveled Mm. in its own intelligence for a little bit too long.
1: But yeah.
0: Uh, It's Mm. the author who has done their research and they intend to tell you. (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: mm. <laughs> yeah i think this book
1: avoids that right i think i think yes. they do they're not talking down to you like they are explaining things that they expect you probably don't know but they're going look we're going to trust that you can keep up here's our explanation of this thing we've only got a chapter to explain it to you every now and then they say things like we're leaving out some details here or this is a bit simpler than the real truth like there is a bit of a lies to children thing going on in some chapters more than others Um but generally you know i think the level at which it's written is. I think they pitch it really well. There are some bits that are a bit difficult and you, you have to reread them, but not not like, oh, man, I cannot wrap my head around this. But there are bits where you have to do a bit of the work yourself. And I feel like that's kind of just the right level. Like I, I, I some popular science books, they feel like they're too simple. Like, I oh, just get to the bit where I learned something I didn't already know. Like, clearly I'm interested in science or I wouldn't be reading this book. And other ones are like, I don't have a PhD. <laughs> I can't understand <laughs> what you're saying. How did this get yeah. published? Yeah. I want
0: to shout out as well. I listened to the audio book as kind of my yeah. revision and uh, that's narrated by Michael Fenton Stevens and he does a lovely job.
1: Does he do the whole book or does he just no, do the He, d- he does the
0: science. Yes. He does the science mm. chapters and then Stephen Briggs with his uh, huh. array of brilliant voices does mm. the fiction chapters uh, mm. and it all comes together very nicely, but I really enjoyed it as an audiobook. I actually think it is probably the perfect book to have as an audio book because mm. where the science is getting a bit heavy, you can sort of let it kind of skim over the surface a little <laughs> bit. <Just laughs> and, a little, little, math. you know, and, and you don't, you don't sort of have that bit where you, you would have, like you say, where if you're reading it, you kind of, oh, I better go back and reread that. You know, because you're listening to it, you just sort of kind of go, yes, time machines, that's fine. Okay. <laughs> You know, oh, yeah. and then we're back on to Stephen Briggs doing his brilliant Ridcully and doing his hex, plus, plus, plus. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah, the audiobooks are great, yeah.
2: That's a great point because I'd have the bit where the science was getting a bit full on and I'd sort of stare off into the middle distance being like, <laughs> is it me that cannot understand this? But then when you finish doing that, you have to keep reading it. <laughs>
1: Whereas-, <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, you, you know, you want, I want to be able to do this while someone's talking to me. I can just zone out for a minute. And then when yeah. I come back, it's over.
2: It was kind of like, you know, that, that cat was like, when will my husband come back from the war? But it's like, when will my brain come back from, like, the floor? But it's just. <laughs>
1: uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. No, that's fair.
0: I do like the end of Chapter 8 as well, where it says, you know, they've done all this talk about time machines. And mm. then they say, there's still some R&D needed. Probably this is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No time probably. Yet. Yeah.
2: I liked travel into the future is easy. Wait. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, yes.
1: Yeah. We're all, we're all, we're all traveling to the future. We're just going at a rate of one second per second. And what we'd Mm. like is to speed that up.
0: (laughs) It's very difficult to get back. That's the problem.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Which is a shame. The next science chapter, again, great pun title, Watch 22. (laughs) So good. Mm -hmm. Is a summary of the real history of Darwin's life because the previous Fictional chapter, chapter nine, is one of the ones that goes into the things that the wizards have to do. This is like chapter seven and nine, where they originally fix the ten things, most of which are problems with the boat that means it's going to have to stop and give Darwin an excuse to get off. But the first time, the first thing they do is they stop somebody else from eating a bit of fish mm. that means that they were too sick to do something important. And then, yeah, they try to make sure that he gets on the boat. And again, like, this is where I'm reading all these things that they're talking about. And they're not the same ones that I had in my show. Like I had the fact that he was going to be a medical doctor, but he actually fainted at the sight of blood. So he had to give that up and do something else. <laughs> there was a duel fought between two people. And I can't remember what it was. It was a, um, and I, Victorian uh, era was wild. Yeah. It's, it, but I mean, this is the thing. And they talk about this later in the book. Where I think they make the really important point that, you know, we like to think of history as these stories of very simple chains of events that are really Mm. important and have this massive impact. But actually, that is a story we tell ourselves. And the way history actually works is lots and lots of little things happen that all add up together and then cause lots and lots of little things to happen. And there is no single chain. And you kind of get that in this story where, you know, there's 10 things that they change that stop Darwin from getting on the boat. And then it's like 1,547 reasons why he doesn't write the book and they have to fix all that because there's all these things that have to change. Because if you only change one of them, he'd still write it. No one event or one choice has that massive an impact on what is going to happen in history.
0: Yeah, and there's a great bit here as well where Hex says, I detect malignity, mm. <laughs> which firstly, malignity is a great word. Thank yes. you, Terry Pratchett.
1: Not that was <laughs> enough.
0: And also, I think this is the bit where kind of my ears pricked up because it felt like, oh, now we're into a Terry Pratchett plot. Like, mm. there's a question that I really want to know the answer to. Why is this happening? What's going on? It's not elves again. So what is it this time? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I got quite intrigued because not having read it before, I was like, oh, I don't know who it is. What's going to be? Who Who is it? And then when it turned out to be the auditors, I was like, oh. <laughs> I, was I was like, like oh, yes, no. we
2: get to see some more signs. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, there was that. And like it, fighting with, yeah.
1: But I mean, I, I mean, I understand it, it did feel a bit shorthanded, but again, you know, it's so slim a plot. Like there's not enough room in mm. the fiction chapters for anything to develop. So he needed an antagonist who had already an established motive for wanting to get rid of people and who had the ability to do things while being a mystery to the wizards. And it wasn't a total surprise that it was the auditors because who else was going to be able to do this without being detected? But it was – I was slightly disappointed that there wasn't some more weird twist to it. Like, I was quite disappointed at the ending. I thought there were some parts of the ending that were great and then there were some parts of the ending that I thought fell quite flat. But that that's not the point, really. Like, you know, the fiction <laughs> is more a framework to be have an excuse to, first of all, make some great jokes, but also – uh Pu- you know, bring to it's the fore these scientific ideas that we can then explore in the non-fiction chapters. So I don't, I'm not, I'm not really seriously criticizing that, but I think if you did just read the fiction chapters, it'd be like a fun little romp, but it wouldn't really be a very satisfying novella on its own. I don't think, well, I say that part of it would be, you know, the central conceit is really fun. I think just the conclusion of it and the setup maybe would be a bit disappointing if, uh, if that's all it was.
0: Yeah, it's because it necessarily has to tie back to Darwin. So it sort of has to begin and end with Darwin.
1: And those mm. bits I actually quite liked.
0: Yeah, it's a wizard story, but it isn't really. And yeah. so that doesn't. But there are some really good jokes, which, yeah, like I say, we'll uh, come to. <laughs> there are some great jokes. jokes. We'll get so it's those. worth it just for the jokes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, they spent a chapter talking about the weird kind of coincidences and strange sort of quirks of fate that got... Darwin on the Beagle, which they then sort of later talk about the fact that this is just how history works, <laughs> really, mm. for everyone. Meanwhile, the wizards are like going, why are there now so many reasons? And I love that the thing that really perplexes Hex is when the number of possible realities of the round world in which Darwin writes the book becomes one. <laughs> and he's like, that's not possible. <laughs> that's not right. And Pond is upset because it's like, it should be an infinite number, even though it's a much smaller infinite number than the infinite number of infinite <laughs> possibilities and there is a whole chapter, chapter 13 and 14, which are about, you know, the different kinds of infinity, which I really liked. But also in chapter 12, they talk about Darwin's, the wrong books in inverted commas, that he actually did write. And yeah. uh, this was great. And they, they kind of, yeah, eight books that are not the origin of species. And they kind of skip <laughs> over parts of that quite quickly. Like there's I think they only write a few paragraphs, maybe only one or two about his work on barnacles, but there's a whole book about that, which is so good by Rebecca Stott, called Darwin and the Barnacle, which is just all about the time between when he got back from the Beagle voyage and published The Origin of Species, and most of that time is him studying barnacles because he felt he <laughs> absolutely had to establish that he had proper credentials as a natural historian before he could. So he publish stuck this with it, controversial, yeah. And he stuck with it, and even though it got more and more complicated and more and more difficult. <laughs> he's like, no, I have to do this. I've set out to write this book about barnacles that's a great book to read if you want more detail about that very well written, Mm. Mm. but it's, yeah, I, I I love how much we get into the weeds of who, who was Darwin? What was he doing? It's great.
2: Mm. Mm. And I like that Huxley gets a mention. And as I know, it's not Aldous Huxley. It's his like ancestor, like a few, like his grandfather. Oh, they were, his, were they, yeah. They,
1: I didn't know they were related. They
2: were. And this is what I love about it because like you, you pick up an Alice Huxley book and depending on when it was published, they will give you like a different version of his like, well, it's like, oh, he's from this like illustrious family where this, some of them tell you the tragic story of his brother, but yeah, they say he's like the grandson or whatever of Darwin's bulldog. And I never looked into that in any depth. So it was kind of nice to just sort of see who that guy was in, in this but it does actually tie in with that later point about all these guys from these fancy families who had like a lineage of this that sort of allowed them to make these ideas but I mean not in all cases some of them you know like Wallace just sort of
0: well yeah because this is a yeah. chapter where Wallace comes you know and that whole like, whole yeah. thing that Wallace was going to publish and then they sort of had this gentleman's agreement <laughs>
1: Yeah, Happily I was a bit worried that Wallace them. wasn't going to show up And I was like, no, you can't write a book about time without talking about Wallace And then he was there and I was like, yay <laughs> I actually wrote in my notes yeah. somewhere, Wallace, hooray um,
2: <laughs> That needs to be on a mug or on a badge or both
1: <laughs> Okay if, Listener, if you want that on a mug or a badge, let us know
2: <laughs> Wallace, hooray, hooray.
1: <laughs> I mean, now I, now I do I want it on a, a mug yeah. or a badge Yeah, so that I was I was really happy to see him turn up um, I should have known. I shouldn't. they wouldn't leave him out. Yeah. The chapter on infinities was really good. And I think one of the things that comes through in all the science Discworld books is when they touch on areas that Jack and Ian are particularly, mm. uh, you know, it's their area of expertise. And, uh, yes. and I'm going to get it around the wrong way, but I'm pretty sure Ian Stewart is the uh, mathematician.
0: No, that's right. That's right.
1: Jack Cohen's the biologist. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. Ian's written some great other books about mathematics.
0: They've got good titles.
1: <laughs> oh, Yeah.
0: Game set and math, yeah. I, uh, I, and I should I should be more aware of. I think I maybe I've heard of some of these. Uh, another fine math you've got me into. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I've not even yeah. sure read any of those. Uh, the one I've read yeah. is um, well, I've read two of his math books. One of which is the annotated Flatland because I love Flatland, yeah. and they mention it briefly in this book. It was written by Edwin A. Abbott. Uh, Sort of a science fiction story. It's like a science romance from around the same time as, you know, H.G. Wells. But it's about a character who's a square who lives in a two-dimensional world and gets shown the three-dimensional world by a sphere. And it's sort of meant to make you think about dimensions in a new way. And it's great. It's great. It's very silly. It's fun. It's also a satire of the culture of the time. And one of the other books that Ian Stewart wrote was a sequel called Flatterland, And it's funny because in this book, when they mention string theory and they kind of explain string theory, they have a little footnote about a term M-brain, which is, you know, the term they use for how many dimensions a string might occupy or what kind of dimensionality those strings have. And you can vary that. You might use different letters instead of M at the start of that. And there's a little footnote that just says, which leads to, of course, you know, puns about no brains and P-brains. Oh, dear. And like they, they go, oh, who would make those kind of jokes? Well, I'll tell you who, (laughs) Ian Stewart. He makes a lot of them in Flatland (laughs) when he's explaining (laughs) string theory and brains and infinity. And where I was going with this was that, yeah, this chapter about infinity is totally, it's Ian Stewart's, he's in his element and doing a great job explaining not just infinities, but also how mathematics works. Like the whole thing about, yeah, mathematicians don't build the foundation of the house first. We we build the rest of the house and then we build the Mm. foundation and then that's the structure by which they explain the mathematics to you. Like that was so good.
0: Yeah, the, the chapter on infinity did sort of make my brain hurt a little bit because it <laughs> yeah. does. You know, you, there's this whole thing. You know, these different kinds of infinities and this sort of bigger infinities and then slightly smaller infinities. And it it's one of those things. You sort of like if I think about this too much, I think my brain is going to just sort of melt and start dripping out of my ears. It's probably best because <laughs> it's just yeah, it's just a bit painful. But um.
2: Yeah, (laughs) I'm gonna jump back a little bit. I really enjoyed the little um, portrait we got of H.G. Wells early on because he, like, of all his developing writings about time machines. But the thing that really stuck out for me was that he was so embarrassed of one of his early stories that he like sought out and destroyed all available copies of it. And I was (laughs) like, is this why he was so interested in time travel? Because he wants to go back and not write that story.
1: I reckon you're onto something there. Also, very Pratchetty, Like, you know, there's that forward yeah. to his uh, early short story in um, yeah. A Blink of the Screen yeah. where he says, if I stick my fingers in my ears and go, no, 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 I can't hear you reading this. And there's yeah. a couple of his really early things that he never republished because he didn't want people to read them. Yeah,
2: and you can feel that, like, completely relatable. But I just like, H.G. Wells, I used to sort of think of him as this titan, not this, like, normal dude who's like, oh, that's so cringe. Please, like, (laughs) let me buy up all these copies of it and throw it in my fireplace.
1: (laughs) On that note, in the first one, which was originally published in 1999, they made a lot of revisions when they republished it. They did a second edition in 2002. Um, and partly that was because in that book they insisted on constantly talking about cutting-edge research at the, at the time, which of <laughs> course became invalidated almost immediately. This one they don't do much of that. There's a couple of times they touch on more modern things, but I think they've they've clearly learned from the experience <laughs> of the first book. And any time they do that, they say, "But who knows if this will still be true? Um, we don't know." <laughs> and you're like, "Good, good work, future proofing." Um So, I didn't feel the need to fact check this or go, oh, what did become of that theory very much? <laughs> but one of the things they were talking about was, you know, what was the first time machine story? And they cite the one that everybody at the time was citing, which is uh, the story by Edward Page Mitchell, The Clock That Went Backward. But it, that's kind of about a magical clock. It's not really a machine. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of magic. And I thought, surely there's a better one than that. There is. The first time machine story might well be a Spanish book, El... Anacropete, which was written in eighteen eighty seven, and the time machine in it, and I'll mention this because it's so cool. It's this massive iron box with all these pipes and stuff coming out of it and a special fluid that stops you from getting younger as you go back in time. Mm. It just felt a bit like a weird version of the TARDIS. <laughs> and I was like, This is ah. cool. I want to read a translation of this book. Mm. Um so yeah, that that I thought that was quite interesting.
0: That does sound cool.
2: Hmm.
1: But I don't think it was very widely known in 2005. Uh that's just me showing off that I did some research. Sorry. I like, uh,
2: <laughs> no, I'm pleased to know that.
0: No, but that sounds that's an interesting that they somebody had sort of sat down and thought, well, what how could we stop the aging process in somebody? You yeah. Know, that, yeah, that's that's an interesting thought process that somebody's gone down.
2: Well, because it seems like it's kind of like womb like almost, mm. it's like put them like But also, I mean, I guess when they do like stasis in a lot of things, you also see them like getting zipped out of a thing and then just like a bunch of fluid comes out. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think one of the,
1: because it's so early, like our idea of how time travel works now is so fixed. Because once the time machine came out, then the idea was you just sit in a chair in a thing and you disappear Mm -hmm. from one time and you appear in another one, you get out, no problem. Whereas before that was sort of established, when people were thinking, oh, if you travel through time, like they just had to invent a way, like there was no standard for it. Whereas now, you know, every time machine, I mean, yeah, it might be like the Terminator. Like, I think you don't see as much variation anymore, but like, you know, in the Terminator, they have that interesting thing where it's like a globe of crackling energy and you can only send like organic material through it, which is why, you know. Carl Reese ends naked. Up, turns up naked and why Terminator? <laughs> the Terminator yeah, yeah, yeah. can only go. Cause it's got like a living <laughs> Just flesh. an
0: excuse to show these men. The yeah. Body Mr. Universe. Is naked.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. hey, look, oh, sorry, your clothes couldn't come with you. Oh,
2: It's, it's a science. Oh, it's a, it's, a, it's diameters, right. We can't. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry.
1: Yeah. Uh, also, we can only why, find
2: you pants when you arrive, but that's okay. Why didn't they send
1: them to a nudist beach? They would have fit right in. Um, <laughs> You know, into a sauna or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, the, um, but it's rare now that people think of that they just like, we, we don't need to think about the mechanics of it. Let's just send you. And that's the interesting part. Whereas I think particularly early on, people are like, oh, well, how do you go to other times? It's like, and, and the really early writings is all, it's you go in a dream or some ghosts come and tell you things or you fall asleep for a hundred years. Oh, uh,
0: yeah, that's a good point. That's a, t- yeah, a Christmas like, Carol is a time travel story, yeah, it's a right? a time travel story. Yeah.
1: It's just that uh, at the time, anything like that was, yeah, you fall asleep or you have a dream. Like a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, it's hit on the head. And potentially the whole bit in King Arthur's time is just a dream. Like, you know, who knows? It takes most of the book. So it's still interesting. And he doesn't know that.
2: I'm going to write a super conservative time travel book where like you actually show up with more clothes on than when you <laughs> left. <laughs> you don't and just make the signs work. <laughs> No, you show up and you're just suddenly wearing like three more layers. And it's just Uh, like, oh, no, it's just like the world wrapped you in like the cloak. Anyway.
1: There's a short film a friend of mine made, uh, Lucas Testro, which is called I'm You, Dickhead, which is about a guy who goes (laughs) back in time to try and teach himself to play the guitar so he can pick up cheeks in the future. Um, (laughs) It's it's very silly. Sounds great. um, Yeah, I'll watch it. But uh, he goes to like the time travel bureau. And every time you get sent back in time, you grow a mustache. And if you go back again, it gets bigger. (laughs) So, but it's great because first of all, it's very silly, but it it has, serves a practical purpose in the storytelling because you can tell which version of him he is by how big his moustache is. It's (laughs) it's very funny.
2: To bring it back to the book, though, can I just say we skipped over the wizards getting in costume for the Victorian era, oh. and I liked the librarian. Yes. Just like, they're like, oh, it's okay. if Lots of hair was popular, then you can just wear your moustache however you want.
1: But also, <laughs> who
2: was it who wanted to dress like a bishop? And
1: oh, that was the dean because he's like, yeah, just uh, like a bishop, but he's not wearing like you know the black shirt and 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 little dog collar. He's he's like got the miter and a <laughs> the, the full
0: and- the full costume. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Like, Bishop of Canterbury kind of outfit. Yeah, there's another that bit where great. they're talking about that, and there's just like a phrase about what kind of trousers they were wearing. Because <laughs> they're getting dressed up and they're sort of looking a bit tweedy, is the word. And someone's like, he's very Victorian, or at least Georgian. I, I guess it's close enough. And, uh, <laughs> And it was like, oh yeah, this is like when people costume a TV show and there's always someone who nitpicks it and go, you wouldn't dress like that in Victorian. So that's more a Georgian outfit. That's, uh, it's like five years out of date. And you're like, oh man, it was a really fast time for fashion.
2: was a really strange breakthrough for me though when I like thinking about costumes when. I think I was watching Mad Men and I was like, oh, it's the 60s, but that person's still wearing, like, 50s. Because I'm like, of course they would be. I still wear clothes from, like, 10 years ago or 15 years yeah. ago. So, like, it's not like, oh, we've moved into the 60s. It's time for skirts to get, like, narrower and you can't wear petticoats anymore. And I was like, oh, because people – and it's, like, an interesting thing for character as well, who would get new clothes all yeah. the time and who would have the old ones. Mm. I mean, that's a, that's a
0: good point that's made in the Good Omens TV adaptation. Mm-hmm. that Aziraphale's clothes are often 50 years out of date and it's fine
1: but still really cool yeah
0: mm. yeah 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 but he's you know he's always a, he he likes his clothes he gets clothes that he likes and then he just keeps wearing them whereas Crowley is always in the latest fashion you know but I just think that's quite a nice idea you know you mm-hmm. don't yeah of course because mm-hmm. some people some personality types would just do that they just take the get the clothes and then just keep them yeah, yeah. Until
2: they literally cannot be worn anymore. And then you're like, well, I'll get the exact same one again, thank you.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I think also that works with modern clothes a little bit. But once you go a certain distance back in time, because there's like, I think this is the phrase I was trying to find. I couldn't find the quote. I'll find it in a minute. But uh, like they talk about, oh, it's a standard modern trouser. Well, there's no standard trouser. And it was like, yeah, because like once you get past a certain period of time, it kind of all blends together for us. Like we just think of that as, oh, that's old fashioned. And that could be anywhere from like 100 years ago to 700 years ago. Maybe not 100 years ago, more like, you know, 200 years ago. But, you know, there's a whole period where we don't think about the fashion because we don't really have good examples of it. Whereas if you're looking at something that's like from the last 50 years, we look at something and we know what, at least what decade it's from. And like, this was a choice they made when they revived Doctor Who in 2005, same year that this was published. They wanted to make it look like 2005 and they didn't want it to- Date by trying to make it look futuristic. This is where those characters are from. They're from this year, so let's make it look that way. And then when you watch it, you know you'll you'll be nostalgic. So
0: I've just found it. Shall I read it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm.
0: So it's the start of chapter fifteen, and it says it was one hour later. Wizards were ranged in rows across the width of the Great Hall in a variety of costumes, but mostly in what might be called early trouser. Yeah. Despite Rincewind's view on nudity, a grubby shirt and pants would pass without comment in many ages and countries and lead to fewer arrests.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> uh, yeah, because that's right, because earlier on Rincewind turns up naked. Mm. He's like, yeah, he's <laughs> a loincloth. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, yeah, that's right. But he's like, nude people fit in anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I like, can't fault you there, buddy. Like,
2: you're right. He's very practical. Yeah, but how are twins. they treated when they arrive? Because, like, sometimes it's
1: frowned upon. I mean, it gives him a good excuse <laughs> to run away, I guess. Um, mm. And people might be less inclined to follow him. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> um yeah.
2: But to do a not very tidy segue, speaking of Doctor Who, do we want to sort of talk about how the fiction part ends? and Because, like, it really reminded me of that, like, Van Gogh episode, yeah. you know, the one that, like, makes you cry every time. Oh. So, yeah. Because
1: yeah, quite- yeah. after – um speaking of Rinswin, they give Rincewind the really difficult assignments because they're like, you're, you're experienced in adventures and stuff because by this time in the narrative, he's been through everything up to including The Last Hero – uh where he goes on the mission to save the disc by dropping off the edge of it, and he's come back. And so they're like, yeah, you, you're you experienced at adventures. You go and do the hard stuff. When the wizards are in Round World, they have to say, return me hex, like is their little code phrase, and they're told to write it down in case they think they might forget it because <laughs> their wizards are very forgetful. <laughs>
0: um, but that's important for later.
1: Yeah, and Rincewind, uh, <laughs> he saves Darwin from a swarm of wasps and I like that wasps were the enemy because I hate wasps and uh, they're awful, awful creatures. They're mean to
0: be. And it also, there's a lot of stuff about parasitic wasps, isn't yeah. there? So that's why. Ooh. Yes.
2: Oh yeah. That, yeah. There's a great line about like, it's not because like they're mean, it's just because they can parasite. So why wouldn't they parasite? Yeah. Like there's things for them to yeah. be parasitic of. So why not? Yeah.
0: It's yeah. That idea that, you know, why would a creator create parasitic wasps? Like, yeah. If you're sitting there creating all of the life on an entire planet, why would you come up with the idea of parasitic wasps or, or you know, creatures that that sort of lay their eggs in other things so that they can eat them alive and then explode out of them later, yeah. <laughs> you
1: know? Yeah, but once you start thinking about that, it really reminds me of that line that uh, Vetinari has in one of the later books. I don't think it's one we've covered yet, but where he talks about how he once saw like some otters, like a mother otter and some baby otters, like eating this mother fish and the eggs from the mother fish. And it was like mother and children feasting on mother and children. And it was like a real moment where he went, the world is essentially cruel and awful. It struck me when they were talking about the parasitic wasp in this book, because I'm like, well, that is awful, but it's no, is it really more awful? I mean, it, it would be to us if we imagine it happening to us, but is it more awful than creatures eating other creatures, which happens everywhere? Like lots of creatures do that. Why are we picking on the parasitic wasps? Oh, just because <laughs> they do it from the inside out. You're the one who said you hate wasps. And yeah, it's because we hate wasps. And I... I <laughs> like, wasps... I don't wasps hate wasps.
0: Are- I'm just no. going to put it out there. They're very oh, important pollinators. Look, I uh, was... They also... <laughs> I,
2: Sorry,
1: <laughs> gets up on a safe
2: soapbox. It's fine. I say it starts no, off. I say, it for, lo- I say it for the I say for the Humans, go better. Is the the whole point of the book? Not not the whole point of the book. But yeah, no, yeah. it's true. Disagreement.
1: It's true. I mean, look, I uh, wasps wasps are fine. Uh, I, I I like to hate them for comedy purposes only. Uh, in real life, <laughs> I do not trap wasps. Yeah, um, watch it
0: because you will get the wasp fans onto you. I mean the
1: thing. <laughs> They're very beautiful. But I mean, I, I did read a book. In fact, not, you love wasps? Uh, no, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Let's not go that far. I like bees. I think that's why I don't like wasps because they're mean to bees. Mm,
0: they do attack beehives. That is true, but they're very clever about what they do. That's
1: what well, they are. I mean, all and creatures they build, are.
0: their nests are beautiful. I mean, you don't want to find one in your house because it's no. a bit of a problem, but they are very beautiful.
2: <laughs>
1: They are. And I mean, look, you know, this is the thing is that all creatures, all life forms on the planet, like they form part of this massive web of life. And you can't really get rid of any of them. And none of them are particularly awful, except maybe human beings. But, you know, we all have our favorites. We all sort of, you know, identify more with some creatures than others. And I think that's what's happening with Darwin, you know, when he's struggling with, is it okay to write this? You know, would God have done this? How does this relate Mm. to God? The things that trip him up are the creatures where he imagines them from a human perspective. And it's like, if we were, if a human being brought up their young by horribly eating other human beings from the inside out that were still alive, it would be the most horrific thing I can possibly imagine. And there's a wasp that does that to spiders, but that's, you know, that's how they've evolved. That's, that's their niche. That's how they've found a way to survive. And if there was a better way for them to survive, then that, like other wasps do, they would do something different. So it's, it's not the same, but it's easy for us, you know, and this was, this was a revelation I had when I first had a pet as an adult that died is that I realized that the reason that's so awful for us is that we don't know what it's like to be a dog or a cat or a, you know, a mouse or whatever. We only know what it's like to be a human being. Yeah. So when we have a creature yeah. with us that lives with us and we, we can only relate to them as if they are another human being. And that's how. We think of them internally, not literally, but on a subconscious level. And so when they die, it is like a person dies because to us they are a person, even though their existence, their internal life is completely different.
0: Yeah, well, that's humans telling each other stories again, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's what we do.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's narrativium.
0: Telling ourselves stories in our own brain. Yeah, narrativium. We haven't mentioned narrativium. I, no. I went looking for narrativium actually, because I wasn't sure if it was in any of the other books or if it was just a science of the Discord concept, but I'm pretty sure it is just a science of the Discord concept. In a footnote. Uh,
1: it does turn up like the word turns up. But the, what it means is different in the science of Discworld books. So in this, it's kind of like a fundamental sort of force of the Discworld universe. Well, it's an
0: element. It's an element, isn't it? Because and and well, they they describe it as an element, but they mainly do that so that they can do the joke that yeah, you that know it's any. not one of the standard five, which are earth, air, fire, water, and surprise.
2: Yeah. You yeah. see so it they, takes they a uh, on peppermint but, <laughs> for the
0: and then yes, exactly, and but then they then they kind of go on to say that narrativium is the thing that makes things what they are, hmm. so they give the example that it is the thing that makes iron iron instead of say, for example, cheese, and of course me, the chemist, was immediately like, but there is iron in cheese <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> because, because Not on the discourse.
0: That's how elements work. They combine with other elements and then you get other substances and that changes their properties. And so that is a bit where the, I I feel like it, it's a bit dodgy, that concept, the idea that narrativium is this element that sort of keeps things the way they are, that that keeps them fundamentally telling the story of what their history is and how they behave and what they are. Mm. But it's like, we but we know that elements don't work like that. And actually, we know that chemistry on the disc, and um, this was one of the listener questions as well. We'll come back to that later. We know that chemistry on the disc is not that different from chemistry on round world. Mm. So I'm not sure that bit quite works, but never mind. We'll just gloss over that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's something actually yeah. I, I remember thinking in the first book that the way they describe narrativium, yeah, it doesn't quite gel because the way they talk about it, it feels more like a, like a fundamental force or a field you know like maybe yes. a field of particles or something mm, mm. because of the effect that it has rather than being an element which they say as you say to make some jokes mm. um, and then they talk about all these other elements as well like deuterium and um, other things and that's not the way that it's talked about in, in the discworld books is more of a well a thing a process or no something. but this is
0: it i honestly don't think i'm prepared to be corrected but i don't think the word narrativium IUM mm. ending is in any of the Discworld books anywhere. Mm. I think yeah. that, so. We have, we have the concepts of narrative causality and narrative other things and possibly narrativia, mm. but I don't think the actual word with that IUM ending, that kind of elementy like ending, you know, narrativium. I don't think it's in any of the other Discworld books. I did go looking and I couldn't find it.
2: Shall we crowdsource the answer? Yeah.
0: So we'll leave that one for the audience to mm. go and double check. But I don't, I think narrativium is unique to the science of Discworld books.
1: Mm. As far as I can tell, Kat's right on this one. The concept of narrative causality certainly appears in the books, most memorably in Witches Abroad, but it also appears in Jingo and, though it's not named, in many other books. I mean, the One in a Million Chance, which crops up nine times out of ten. I think that's pretty much the same thing. But the more science-y sounding narrativium, only in the science of Discworld. If you know any better, please let us know. It's not actually all that easy to search every single Discworld novel. I mean, look, there's so much to talk about. I wish we could talk forever, but we we have to make the podcast a reasonable length. So let's let's talk briefly about some of these other science chapters. Hmm. Chapter 16 I found really interesting because once the the number of things they have to change to get Darwin back on track multiplies becomes huge, this is where they bring in this talk about what happens with history. If you could build a time machine, go back and change one thing, would that change everything or would history still pretty much go the same way? Like does history diverge or converge, which as someone who teaches creativity and we talk about divergence and convergence all the time in terms of generating ideas – I was very tickled to see those terms show up here. I thought that was a really interesting chapter about, you know, how does history work? And I loved that they address, because when I was reading it, I was like, oh, is this really how history would work? Like, you seem very convinced that this one book is very important and nobody writes the a book that's equivalent for a 100 years. But I think they kind of sold me by the end on, no, here's why we have made the story this way and we realise it's maybe not that realistic this is probably how real history would work. And I thought that was great that they kind of addressed that.
0: There's a great moment in chapter 16 where, you know, they talk about the fact that our physical models are rooted in brains that get most of their perceptions wrong. So they're talking about this idea that humans are kind of limited by what the way our brains work. And then it just kind of ends on this thing where it says shouting at monkeys in the next tree. That's what brains evolved to do, not mathematics and physics. And it just ends there. And I, and I just sort of sit and stare. You know, I was listening to the audiobook and I sort of just sort of pondered that for a bit. And in the book, I sort of stared at it for a bit because I'm like, and yet we do mathematics and physics. So yeah. we have evolved to do mathematics and physics. Yeah. So. We did evolve to shout, evolve to shout at monkeys in the tree, but we also evolved to do mathematics and physics.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. it, we evolved sort of, to
1: be multi-purpose. You know? Yeah, it kind of. That was the... Yeah,
0: it feels like. A... Yes, and it's also one of those little moments where you kind of go, ah, <laughs> just mm. because I th- I do think there are little bits every now and then. Where it's kind of, yes, yes, evolution, natural selection, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's sort of this little sort of philosophical bit of kind of maybe there is something bigger as well.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. But there, yeah, I agree. There are some bits where it just doesn't, it feels a bit like this is just your personal opinion, isn't it? Right. You haven't researched this. (laughs) Um, and that's fine, but it's, it's in there with all this stuff that is well researched. I think sometimes that distinction's not clear. And sometimes it works really mm. well. Like um when the, the chapter 18 about steam engine time where they talk about this idea that when it was time for the steam engine to be invented, someone was going to do it. And it's not true that James Watts invented the steam engine. He didn't do that. Steam engines are like thousands of years old. Yeah. Um, here's all the steps that lead up to it. And they sort of contrast that with the, all the steps that lead up to the, you know, Darwin's theory of evolution and natural selection. And like someone was going to do these things because all of the pieces were in place, but we like to simplify it to one person invented one thing. And you're like, he invented one key part of what became the dominant modern steam engine design that made it really efficient and work really well. It was very clever, but it was based on all this stuff that came before for thousands of years. And that's true of pretty Mm. much every discovery and invention. And I thought that was really good.
0: It, it is. And it, it's another lie to children, isn't it? It's uh, who mm. discovered this? Well, it was that person. It's like, well, <laughs> a bit.
2: <laughs> That's know, where the finishing soon, touches. <laughs> yeah. As soon
0: as you start poking around, you're like, well, that person did a thing that was quite important. But there were 47 other people before that person. Yeah. Mostly who have since been forgotten, you know. And yeah. that is
1: not a satisfying answer for like a 10 year old. Like they don't want that answer. Wait till they
2: find out yeah. about the telephone like how that all went down. <laughs> oh, but they love that yeah. story.
1: That's great. Yeah, it was. But uh, it's
2: also a little bit upsetting. It is upsetting. <laughs> it's upsetting.
1: There's a lot of upsetting things about the whole War of the Currents business and everything to do with it. It's very upsetting. There's a great episode of Bob's Burgers about that, actually. There's actually the- a
2: great episode of Rick and Morty that's kind of tapped into the thing earlier on. Well, there's a lot of interesting science fiction episodes of like like that go into concepts well, but hmm. an earlier chapter where they talk about if you wanted, like, everyone, time travel tourists would want to go to the crucifixion. So if you went there, realistically, it'd just be, like, overrun by, like, thousands <laughs> of, like time travelers yeah. yeah and there's an episode about that that's all set on like this snake planet where they invent time travel and all these snakes keep going back to try and kill snake hitler and there's just this <laughs> I remember. <that laughs> but one. then there's all these competing things so they're all trying to kill each other and then there's this, just this amazing scene of this balcony where snake hitler was supposed to be just overflowing with dead snakes who are all like lasering each other and they're all in different al- it's just it's one of my favorite episodes it's it's a lot of fun yeah Shouldn't be able to say a lot of fun and snake Hitler in the same (laughs) sentence, but there we go. It's better
1: better than any other kind of Hitler, I think. Um, True.
0: Can we talk about Chapter 20? Yeah. Because I I love Chapter 20. It's the chapter that starts with, this is what most people think about evolution. Yeah. And then it just starts it starts with this whole thing, you know, of yeah, it was this and then then this sort of this happened and then, you know. <laughs> and you sort of wince a bit because you think, uh, yeah, I thought some of this and now you're telling me it's not true. yeah. I got <laughs> like,
1: really yeah, worried. The folk view. I was like yes, I was reading yeah. that going, "Oh, did this, did I say this in my comedy show. And I was like, Oh no, yeah, I did it. Yeah. I did it. I went deeper. Okay, good. Okay. Phew. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 It's like, once upon a time, there was a little warm pond full of chemicals and they messed about a bit and came up with an amoeba. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, yeah, okay. And it just sort of goes on like that. And then it explains why, you know, it's not, it's not good. And then there's this really cool bit about thalidomide, which oh, yeah. I found really interesting because Thalidomide is taught in A-level chemistry as an example of a molecule that has a mirror image. And Mm -hmm. the lie to children that we tell or that we have told in the past is that um, one mirror image of that molecule caused the birth defect and the other did not. And it Mm. kind of goes into this idea that these kind of different mirror images of molecules can cause different effects in the body and it can cause problematic side effects and so on. And then, you know, when you get into it more, you learn that actually thalidomide interconverts in the body anyway. So it doesn't, even if you could somehow separate the two enantiomers is what we call these molecules, it, you know, wouldn't help because y- you would still interconvert. And then what it gets into is the thing that that I was not aware of because not a biologist, mm. but it, it says that actually... It's only, because the way this story is often presented is that every mother that took thalidomide pretty much gave birth to a child with a birth defect, right? Mm. And it, they make the point, that, no, it's, it's, it was only about one in 500. Mm. It was quite a small number. And the point that they're making, I assume it's Jack Cohen that wrote that bit, is that actually these are probably parents who had a genetic makeup that, was not that far away. So they talk about a threshold of response was not that far away from producing that birth defect anyway, just by chance, just by random chance. Cause it does happen randomly. Mm. And, and what the thalidomide did was just made that slightly more likely. Mm. Um, and so then they said, you know, occasionally what happened is two of these children with these birth defects, then married and had children and the children had the same birth defect. And of course the, First response was, well, did the thalidomide somehow get passed on? Did that effect somehow change their genetics and get it passed on? And the point that he makes is, no, you know, again, this is, that seems like the, the sort of the obvious conclusion that you would immediately jump to. But actually the truth is probably that you, what you have got there is two parents who are, who were close to that threshold anyway. And so then if, if those two if they have children, they're more likely to have a child with that birth defect. And I just mm. thought it was just really interesting because again, you know, it was one of those moments of like, oh, I have been told a lot of lies to children about this yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, oh, okay, there's a lot more to this story that I didn't know. And uh, so it just goes to show every, we've all got we've all been told these things and we're all every now and then you do just come across this thing as like oh, okay, there's there's more to this.
2: They had that point about, like, how you think you know things and you've most knowledge through just, you know, being in life. But any time you get a little bit closer, you're like, oh, actually, there's so much more that I don't know
1: or that there's more to it. Mm. I think this, yeah. it's interesting because yeah. this is one where they're really on the money about what the kind of science was. Well, they're talking about introns and exons, which are bits of the genetic code, uh, the exons being the bits that code proteins and the introns being the bits that don't in between. Uh, but then they were like, people think this is just junk, the introns, and there's this all this other junk DNA that doesn't mm. do anything. But actually, probably it does do things. And in fact, in 2006, the year after this was published, the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine was run by two guys, Andrew Fire and Craig Mello, who worked on RNA interference, which is exactly the thing they're talking about in this chapter as being the thing that those mm. bits of DNA do, which actually has a function. And yeah, it was, it's good to see them pick a thing that's a bit cutting edge that actually panned out. <laughs> mm. Yes, but that was chapter twenty.
0: Let we have to do twenty one. Twenty one is the mm. newgar surprise.
1: We do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I love that. I love it. I love
2: it. <laughs> uh, Auditor battles, just more of them, please. Like just yeah, <laughs> more. Every book needs one.
0: It's it's the it's the dean going all dirty, Harry, isn't he? <laughs> And, and, uh, he's firing chocolates of the, uh, oh yeah, the Higgs and Meekins luxury assortment. Yeah. It's kind of, ha, I expect you are wondering, eh, I expect you are wondering indeed if I have any chocolate left. (laughs) And as a matter of fact, I'm not. And then the auditor's like, no, I'm not wondering if you have any chocolate left. (laughs) Because, because the assortment contains blah, 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 blah. And the dean goes, everyone forgets the Nougat surprise. (laughs) He's got a real
1: thing. He's got a thing for Nuga. Like, he's got it in for it. He does not like Nuga, does he? No one likes it. No one remembers it. <laughs> well, it sticks in your teeth and it's yeah. not worth it. I did enjoy that chapter, but I do have to say it did feel a bit like recycling the same gags from Thief of Time. Uh, I, I, the Dirty Harry bit was the best though. That was so good. Um, and I do wonder if you hadn't read Thief of Time, whether you would really, cause Ponder gives this explanation quite quickly to the other wizards of this is how, cause it, cause red color gives him the job. He's like, you've mm-hmm. got an hour figure out how to kill auditors. He's like, they're invincible. He's like, okay, you've got 90 minutes. then. It's very Star Trek. <laughs> um, and he comes back and he's like, yeah, yes. look, you know, if they have emotions or if they feel sensations and they, they have an individual response, then they are destroyed. And I'm like, how do you know that? <laughs> like, how do you know, how do any of you know anything about this? Have you read Hogfather? You went and because- read a piece of time. <laughs> I don't know. It felt a bit like a shortcut. Like, it makes sense if you've read the other books. I feel like if you hadn't read those particular books, particularly Hogfather and Thief of Time, the wizards knowing all this stuff about auditors and it being such a big info dump, I think, again, if it was a standalone story, it would, it would feel very clunky, but I think it gets away with it because we can assume you've read enough yeah. Discworld to know what's going on.
0: I mean, are you reading this book if you haven't read all the dis- <laughs> I mean, it's probably a safe bet, isn't it? Uh, yeah, look, probably
1: not. It's the third <laughs> in a series about the science of a fictional world. Yeah, but it happens. It would,
2: it would <laughs> it happen, would you know. Like
1: every book is somebody's first book in a series, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Particularly with Discworld, yeah. where you know it doesn't. I think the science discourse are weird in Discworld because you kind of do want to read them in order because even the f- science bits kind of do build on stuff, and they do occasionally have those footnotes, like you were saying, Liz where it's like refer back to Science of Discworld or Science of Discworld 2. I'm like, no, I will not. Yeah. (laughs) I read it already. (laughs) They've accidentally brought Darwin into the Discworld. He finds out about wizards and stuff. They decide to tell him more or less the truth, although the chat's called Lies to Darwin, so they tell him a few fibs to (laughs) make sure he doesn't get too freaked out and then freeze him. And they realise that when they've been going back in and out of Roundworld, they've created a few doorways into that world that persist. And some of them have have gone back in time. So they've allowed not just the auditors in, but the auditors to let somebody else in because Darwin tells them about his visitation and they realize that's the God of evolution. Last seen, in fact, only seen in the last continent, they decide we've got to do something about that. But Ponder's is very clear that they can't not let him have that visitation because they can't disturb that because they've spent all this time undoing what happened they can't stop it from ever happening in the first place, or they're going to cause a paradox. They don't go into that in a lot of detail, but they that's kind of what's going on, right? And so they find the earlier Darwin talking to the god, and they go back through that portal to Mono Island. That's where they have the big battle with the auditors. And then they come back, and the sort of last fiction chapters, uh, they're going to take Darwin back home where he belongs, first of all, to the Museum of Natural History in London, where, of course, there's that you know famous statue of him, and tell him that because of his book, like humanity evolves and has a chance to survive by going out into space rather than getting flattened by a comet. And it, yeah, Liz, I was the same as you. It had real Vincent and the Doctor vibes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it was, yeah, and I it. It was it. kind of beautiful. Yeah, I really liked it. But then he has that thing where, well, I'd like to wake up now. This is clearly a dream. And he puts it into context, like he speaking of uh, Christmas Carol. He's like, oh, yeah, have you read A Christmas Carol? This is this clearly what this is. Recent novel, A Christmas Carol. <laughs> is You're not actual ghosts, but I've read that book, and now I'm having, like, visitations from the future, in inverted commas. It's just all a dream. It's my own thoughts kind of ordering themselves. And he's like, and when I wake up, I hope I don't remember too much of this. And, and Ridcully's like, oh, are you asking us to modify your memory? Because there's this whole thing where they, we can make him forget, and they're like, that's not ethical, which is nice to see in a book about magic. That someone's like, it's not ethical to mm. modify someone's memories. But he's like, but he's asked for us to do it. So, we can do it now, can't we, Ponder? And Ponder's like, yeah, okay, now we can do it. He's asked for it. <laughs> um, so, they send him back without his memories and he wakes up and feels all confirmed that he knows what he's going to do. He's going to mm. write the book. We kind of skipped over Chapter 22, but we've we've kind of talked about that a bit. That's the one that talks about how we construct stories of history that are not really true mm. and that we name things that don't exist. Yeah it kind of categorizes the belief systems that are prevalent in the modern world in a way that i think is a bit oversimplified and maybe not that useful and as they are want to do in the previous books too whenever they talk about religion they spend a lot more time talking about fundamentalists and terrorists than they do about anybody else which mm. i feel is a bit unfair and like this was part of the meanness that came through to, for us in the in the second book but that chapter was it was mostly all right but chapter 24, I gotta say, the last science chapter, they really lost me in this chapter.
0: Oh, the lack of sergeants.
1: Cause this is the chapter where they go, what was so special about Victorian England that made it, and these are their words, so progressive, yeah. inventive and innovative. I was like, and, and they seem to end up at a point where they're like, well, so many things. It was so much better than Russia and China and Poland and all these other places for so many re, and, and it just, And I'm sure this is not their intent, but it just really came across as, look, you know, we're English and England is the best. And this is why. And uh, (laughs) no one else in the world could have done this. And if we hadn't done it, things would have been terrible. And you're like, haven't you argued that that's not how the world works in the previous Mm. chapters? And just the tone of this chapter really just put me off. How did you feel about the ending of, of the book?
2: That actually makes me feel a lot better because I was kinda like, Why is this here? It kept like going not where I expected to go, but not in a in a good way. Like it wasn't like, Oh, and here's a revelation. It was like, Oh, and look at this like fancy rich boy who like went to the tropics and learned how to make pickles for the things and then they're like, But look at all the jobs he's creating and all the things. We'll gloss mm-hmm. over all the horrifying. Here's a sentence about like how women were treated badly. Anyway, England is great. Um which <laughs> it was is like a bit like that. I was just kinda like what is the point you're trying to make? Because it didn't feel cleanly made. It was just, and it felt a little bit shoehorned in at the end. I really wanted to like it because the title is just very compelling. And I was like, they're going to bring it home. They're going to, but they just didn't. So it was just a bit of an odd inclusion. Yeah.
1: Did it? Did this one work for you? Ken? how did you feel about the end?
0: Uh, no, I mean, I th- I think it's the same bit. And this whole thing about, you know, this whole, I mean, it's the title of it is A Lack of Sergeants, isn't it? Mm. And it's it's sort of this idea, you know, how do I dig a trench? The correct answer is I say, Sergeant, dig me a trench. You know, and Victorian England was great because we had people that could organise things. (laughs) Um, They're not experts.
1: experts. They just organise things. A lot of bits of this chapter felt like things that people who were arguing for Brexit would say. And I'm like, I'm sure, (laughs) I am sure that none of the three authors who wrote this were on that team, but it just sounds a bit too Mm. much like that. Because, yeah, it's it's so mired in class. It's like we used to have this middle class and they just keep emphasising how important Mm, the middle class mm. of England was. And they're like, yeah, the middle class who actually know how to do things. They don't know what to do. That's what the upper class decides. And they don't actually do the things. That's what the working class do. But they know how to organise people to get things done. And you're like, you're basically going, yeah, class structures, we need it. We must keep it. We cannot divert from it. And then they end by sort of saying we can't stagnate.
0: And you're like, well, yeah, because it does. It does have this bit of human beings must become more ever more diverse, valuing and enjoying each other's differences rather than fearing them or suppressing them. So mm-hmm. it is kind of. It was great because we had this class structure and we could get things done. Uh, but you know, obviously, things can't carry on like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, women we it terribly.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. They talk about how the society of the time promoted difference and different views and stuff, but they don't talk about anybody who was horribly persecuted or vilified or denied access to that world that they're talking about being so important, you know, like people of colour or Irish people or women or any, you know, is, yeah. They well, don't, I was yeah, reading
2: yeah. The Five, which is like it's basically exploring the women who were murdered by Jack the Ripper and looking at their lives in mm-hmm. detail, not talking about their murder so much, but just sort of what, like, it goes from their childhood through to what brought them into the orbit of this killer because a lot of them were not sex workers, not that that would have mattered, but they were thought actually to be living rough because they'd fallen on hard times for various reasons. And it goes into a lot of issues in Victorian England that I hadn't realized. A lot of it stems back to lack of contraception because sometimes one child too many would just ruin a family. Mm -hmm. And then it goes into what the workhouse was and that kind of thing. So it was really interesting to then see a book being like, we're just going to gloss over that in one sentence. Because obviously you can't go into a whole deeply researched historical text in your science education book. But I kind of like if you're going to venture into that territory, you've got to venture into it properly, not sort of shove it in at the end.
1: Yeah. Yeah, mm. and I felt like it felt a bit rich coming from people who complained about physicists talking about biology. I'm like, well, you're a biologist and a mathematician talking <laughs> about culture and history now. So, um, and they're very dismissive. Like there's a bit where they mention like some naive historians have this kind of idea of how history works. That's not how it works. I'm like, excuse me, <laughs> do you want to talk to some actual <laughs> historians about this folks? So, yeah, I feel like they, the most yeah. of the book was really good, but the the start was a bit like, oh no, is it going to be mean? But it, then it was okay. But the end, I just felt they did not stick the landing, but that's all right. The science bit. Yeah. The, the fiction yeah. bit ended beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. Really nice night. Um Although I will say the way they defeat the last auditor who turns up at the Museum of Natural History was a bit underwhelming because Rid doesn't say anything clever to trick it into thinking of itself as an individual. He just talks to it until it hesitates and then sort of goes "I" and then explodes. And I'm like, but Rid didn't say anything to cause that to happen. It just sort of happened. So, I thought that aspect of the fiction ending was a little underwhelming, but the whole stuff with Darwin and the dream and, and all the things that they show him, and I thought that was, yeah, beautiful. And that mm. was more important than the auditist, frankly, so I wasn't too upset about that.
2: Oh, we, can, we can live in a world where there's both.
1: Yeah. We should press on, but just before we do, there are any absolutely banger lines or jokes that you want to read or, or bits that we haven't talked about that you just want to quickly give a shout out to before we move on to listener questions?
0: There is one small thing which is the dodo, because oh, there is yes. this section where they talk about the dodo and they say, you know, we all know what the dodo looks like, don't we? And they, and they say, actually, no, we don't, because we've based on sort of, you know, a couple of drawings and half a specimen. Because the version of the dodo that we know is based on Lewis Carroll, right? Mm. The illustrations in Lewis Carroll. Alice in Wonderland it is Alice in Wonderland have I got the right Alice anyway never Mm. mind yeah yeah the the point is you know that's how we know what the dodo looks like is based on those those pictures which are just fictional and they make the point you know they think oh well it's grey it's always drawn as grey but it was probably brown Hmm. and then you look at the artwork on the front cover and it's definitely (laughs) grey so you (laughs) think You'd have thought that would be the one bit where somebody would have gone, uh, Paul, Paul, could you, uh, could you just make that dodo a bit more brown? <laughs> because that's like a whole bit in the book and probably we should make it consistent. You know? yeah. But no, yeah. Uh, so I don't know whether that was a deliberate joke or whether that was, um, but it is definitely grey on all the artwork I've seen. It's that's
2: definitely grey.
1: Yeah. I, uh, actually, an I, actually, outlandish
2: color would be funny
1: we haven't i haven't mentioned the cover i really love the wheeled tortoise that turns up on mono yes. island when they because they do take yeah, Darwin yeah. also to meet the god of evolution on his island yeah he's uh, big on wheels just undoes <laughs> any any like desire he had to believe in that god because it's all too weird and gross and strange for him uh that was quite fun
2: dirigible whales <laughs>
1: oh dirigible whales. <laughs>
2: so the, fat, the, nor- the description of them deflating <laughs> mm.
0: I have got one more thing, and yep, that is yep. the final afterthought, which is the Darwin family motto. Oh, yeah, that's because nice. Because oh, yeah. I was listening to the audiobook, and at that particular moment I had the ebook open at the same time, oh, and yeah. I was sort of looking at both at once, and they're not the same.
1: Oh, well, I've got a um, first edition oh. of the book here.
0: On the audiobook, he says, watch and be bold. Michael Fantasy even says, watch and be bold. Oh. And then in the ebook and in the paper book, yeah. it says, watch and listen. Yeah. And I went and sought some, uh, some Latin experts on this and huh. they told me that it is bold, oh. right? So it's obviously, it was corrected for the audio book that the, the right. orday is more correct. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm not a Latin scholar. No. Um, let's say I am and <laughs> that a better translation of it is bold. So it is watch and be bold. So for some reason it was wrong in the book, and then they when they did the audio book they corrected it.
1: Someone's done a dog Latin translation. It was audio. That must mean audio. Must mean sound. Listening. And yes. You, no, that's not what yes. it means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh no! Yeah. Oh, I did. Exactly. I did not pick that yeah. up. I meant to look that up to see if it was true because it's a great motto. But um, which one? <laughs> well, they're both good. <laughs> I do like watch and listen better, but that is not accurate. So that's okay. Liz, did you have any favourite bits? I think I've
2: already mentioned the dirigible whales deflating and when he's just going back to the mountain where there's a sad sound of, like, air coming out. It's just, I love that. It's very evocative but also hilarious. So, why would you want a dirigible whale?
1: But other than that. I Look, I will just slip a couple of in. My favourite footnote is probably the one where they say uh, time travel has become an entirely respectful research topic and there's a footnote on respectful that says, well, let's not exaggerate. (laughs) It's (laughs) not entirely (laughs) respectful. Um, You're not going to lose your job, but... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also really like when Rid Cully says, uh, someone or something is playing Les Buggers Rizzebulle, which uh, is roughly (laughs) Quermian for uh, silly buggers, uh, which (laughs) I thought was great. (laughs) And just the relationship between him and Stibbons in the book. Actually, I just want to mention that in general. There's a lot of great lines, but it's clear that in this book, Rid Cully is looking at Ponder Stibbons and going, you are a cunning young wizard who knows what he's about. And there's a few lines that are like, you know, he's got the old mistrust of like a younger wizard who's really cunning. But I think this is where you can really see him being impressed with Ponder Stibbons, not just for the magical stuff that he does, but for his organizational abilities and the fact that he cares about stuff and gets things done. And the idea that comes up later in sort of Unseen Academicals that maybe Rid is grooming Ponder to be the next Arch Chancellor, I think really kind of starts here. And I really liked that relationship between the two of them. And I really liked Rincewind in this book. Not as much as in uh, in the second one, maybe, but I I still think he was great too. But while there are plenty of other great lines, we should get onto to some listener questions.
2: Yeah. All right. So the first question comes from London Kiwi Emma via Instagram. What right. is the meaning of brackets, round world, life? I feel like
1: <laughs> oh, just asking, we all came to the same conclusion for this. Oh, one.
0: There we go.
1: Just ask an easy question. <laughs> Did we? Did we all come to the same conclusion? Cat and I did. Uh,
0: forty-two. It's forty-two, yeah. isn't it? Oh, yeah. Tle, yeah okay. It is. And yeah, obviously
2: it is.
1: Ben would get there as well. Sure. Okay. I mean, I mean,
0: yeah. If you wanted to give a more Discworld answer as opposed to uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> then, because someone else, there was a question about digital watches as well somewhere, wasn't it? So someone was obviously had Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, on I missed that on one. My brain, but, but yes. Uh, I mean, I think the meaning of life. I mean, I certainly for Terry Pratchett, it, it's all about stories, isn't it?
1: Mm, yeah,
0: it's like life exists to tell stories, essentially. To, to you know, it's all kind of culminated in this, in this sort of cr- these creatures that can t- explain the world by telling stories to each other. Yeah, yeah. So I sort of feel like that's where that's that's the answer to that. If there is an answer to it,
1: yeah. And I mean, look, there's a couple of times that death in his conversations with people who are dead, touches on those ideas. And, you know, that sort of the idea of by and large, you know, you try and make the world a little bit better than when you got there.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: That's about as close as it comes. But I quite I quite like that.
2: The next question comes from Rin Bettencourt via Facebook. What other historical figures would you like to see the Wizards of Unseen University interact with? Ooh. So Rin has suggested Winston Churchill as one.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good one, isn't it?
0: My brain with this, I went that my – one gripe with these books is they're very male,
1: Mm, Yeah. Mm.
0: right? You've got three male authors and then obviously you've said it around the wizards who are necessarily all male unless you want to sort of bring an esque, but they don't.
1: (laughs) Well, I really thought Susan might turn up because they're trying to find out about the auditors and they know her, but they don't even mention her.
0: Yeah. So it's basically that there are no, there are pretty much no women at all, are there? Mm. And so I was trying to think, okay, well let's have, you know, because obviously Darwin, obviously another man. Mm. So I'm thinking, okay, I want to, I want to get some women into these stories. So one of my favorite chemists is a, is a woman called Elizabeth Fulhane who invented the concept of catalysis. She was the first person to publish a book that mentioned the concept of catalysis, but she got just completely forgotten about until fairly recently. If you looked it up, who discovered catalysis? It'd probably say Basilius. But he was fifteen years old when she published. (laughs) But of course, you know, people people didn't take women's science very seriously. Mm -hmm. Arguably still don't today. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) but there there is the reason I love her as a character, we don't know a lot about her, but in the start in the in the beginning of her book, in the sort of the, the first page of her book, she she has this quote and it says Uh, but censure is perhaps inevitable for some are so ignorant that they grow sullen and silent and are chilled with horror at the sight of anything that bears the semblance of learning in whatever shape it may appear. And should the specter appear in the shape of a woman, the pangs which they suffer are truly dismal. (laughs) (laughs) And I just think what a, what a fantastic, this is 1794, 1794. And I'm like, Oh, oh, I'd love, I would just love it. If the wizards like ran up against her. Uh, well perhaps you could get perhaps you could get kind of granny Weatherwax along oh my you god sort of feel like they you feel like they'd get on when you, <laughs> you need to get on or they'd kill each other
1: we, you know you've inspired <laughs> me both at the same time now i'm thinking about this i i would love to see them interact with ada lovelace because yeah you know if something went wrong with hex and they were like well we need to write a pro- we need to fix this programming well, on round world, there's this woman who invented computer programming. Maybe she could help us. Yeah. Um, that would be a perfect that'd fit. That'd be good. I think. So that'd be good. Yeah. Or, or maybe some of the people, like I could see them also interacting with some of the people, in particular, the women who uh, worked on the mathematics and the computer programs for, say, the NASA space program as well. So there's like a whole host of things you could bring in there. That could be cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, like, uh, Lise know as well for nuclear fission. Yeah. Ooh. And, uh, and Marie Curie, of course, you know, yes. that would be good. You yeah, get into the whole nuclear science thing. Cause you could, you could do a whole thing where, oh, the humans have accidentally blown up the planet with a nuclear bomb. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> maybe, maybe we could stop that happening.
2: Oh, <laughs> so you could great. get
0: in, you could get into that. Yeah. So yeah, I think if you're going to do it again, you, yeah, yeah you definitely have a more female centered mm. book.
2: Mm. Good call
0: would be nice.
2: So the next question comes from Sven by Discord. What other book series would work similarly well or bad for a science of book explaining real-world science?
1: And he's specifically saying here, you know, not the science of Star Trek where they try and explain the science in the fiction, but what would work well as a book where you explain real-world science using the fiction as a lens.
0: Oh, goodness. This is tricky. I'm I'm trying to – now See now. I'm like trying to think what have I read recently that is a whole series because, you know what, I haven't read many things that are series of books.
1: Mm. Well, it doesn't have to be a book because my answer, and this is not going to surprise any long-time listener, is um, probably Doctor Who because there have been some really right. bad like Science of Doctor Who books, but you could totally write a Science of Discworld sort, sort of book where – The Doctor goes, you know, and visits some weird space aliens or whoever, or goes back and forth through history, meeting these strange things, or some aliens interfere with human history and he has to, like, sort of set it right, which is something, you know, the Doctor does all the time. You know, she could be explaining that to a companion and then we could have a science chapter which explains it to us the yeah. um, the reader. So I I think that would work great.
0: You know what? They did a show like that. I watched it not long ago. It had Brian oh. Cox, but it was a few it was from a few years ago, so it wasn't uh it was it wasn't Jodie Whittaker. It was um it was Matt Smith. So and that is literally what they did. They had Brian Cox kind of wandering along about to go to this lecture on the nature of time and physics mm. and kind of relativity and then he just sort of wanders into the TARDIS. And does a bit of back and forth with Matt Smith. Then they go back and do a bit of the lecture, and then there's a bit more chat with with the doctor, and then they go back and do a bit more of the lecture, and then. So actually, yeah. So that is so that sort of exi- exists on a very small yeah. scale. I mean, I guess you could do something similar with the Marvel universe. That would be quite good, couldn't you? You mm. could, uh, you know, you could yeah. have a bit of exponent, because actually, I was involved in a book called The Secret Science of Superheroes, uh, oh. which came out a few years ago. And in there, we had chapters from different scientists sort of taking, uh, super, you know, the ideas of superheroes and kind of saying, you know, what, what is the physics, chemistry, biology or whatever involved in this? You know, what, what would you have to do? Cause it kind of started with this idea of how much protein would Spider-Man have to eat to actually make his webs? Right. How That's many eggs? Cool. How many eggs would he actually have to eat? But then there was, you know, other things like, uh, you know, why, why is the whole green? Why green, right? Where is yeah. that green color? So There's a whole chapter on that. And I did a chapter on the invisible woman and this idea of invisibility. And like, yeah. if you're invisible, you have a bit of a problem because it would inherently mean you couldn't see anything.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah.
0: and and kind of all. So there was all of it was all those sorts of ways. So you could do you could definitely do that. Where I mean, yeah. We, yeah, because we've already sort of done that. So yeah, that could work.
1: That's cool. I like yeah. that. I mean, which does also remind me of the bit in the book we didn't mention where the wizards make themselves invisible. And as Terry says, you know, one person is invisible can move quickly and stealthily, but a bunch of invisible people just <laughs> bump into each other because they can't see each other either. I thought that yes. was very funny. Yeah. Well, that's a good that's a good answer. I like that. How about you Liz? What do you think would make a great science of? So you're probably
2: a bit fed up of me saying that you need to read Diana Wynne Jones, but I'm absolutely going to go with the Crestomancy <laughs> series because okay. it's I think it's ripe for a science like examination of it because it is all about having sort of alternate or parallel realities. And th- there's at the core of it is an enchanter who has nine lives because he wasn't born in the other realities where everyone else was. And that's why he's so singular. So I think that would be a really interesting point of comparison. There's a whole like, why are the different worlds different or so different? Why are some of them are similar? There's just, and there's a lot of real world theory that we saw in this book that would apply well to this world as well. So I think it'd be a nice complementary one to this series while being its own thing. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to settle on the Chris Dermansy series by Diana Wynne-Jones for this one.
1: This is clearly like vote number 60 for us <laughs> doing a Diana Wynne-Jones podcast. I'm,
2: I'm up for it. I think it would be great. Um, but that's so, great. You,
1: know. you um, could
0: have fun with some horror type stuff because horror is very oh often yeah. set in the real world, isn't it? It's usually set in the mm. real world. So there are things you could play with there of how could that come about? You know, could you explain some of these horror concepts? Could you get into, you could have fun explaining the science in sort of quote quote marks you know the science behind things like vampires and werewolves and ghosts yeah. you know where do these concepts come from what's the history behind them are there kind mm. of medical conditions that actually well we know there are obviously there are you know yeah there are there yeah. are kind of a lot of the time we're sort of reflecting on psychology so you could have a bit of fun sort of getting into the psychology of of, of some of these concepts like um you know, Jekyll and Hyde and that sort of that idea of the, the sort of the shadow self versus yeah. the sort of the, the veneer that we put on for polite society. Cause that's kind of where that's going, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I always think vampires of yeah. a sort of that reflection on the psychopath, aren't they? That idea that you, you mm. have this person who's very, very shiny and polished, very, uh, charming and lovely and everyone is immediately won over by them.
1: But actually, Mm, you know,
0: the truth is that they are a horrible blood-sucking monster.
1: Yeah, I never thought about that in those terms. Uh, Yeah, that's great.
0: Yeah. So you could, yeah, you could definitely get into it with horror, I think.
1: Yeah, that's a great idea. Could you do the science of hammer horror? (laughs) Yeah. If you wanted to tie it to something. Oh, that's cool. Oh, well, um, touching on that sort of idea of science, you did get a question specifically for you. Let's do the ones-
2: <laughs> This question comes from Alistair Stewart via Facebook. I was wondering whether chemistry runs differently on the Discworld.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: he, kn- he knows me. So this is Alistair because he is the host of Pseudopod. So, ah, uh, and well, he is one of the owners of uh, Escape Artists with his partner, Marguerite Kenner.
1: Thanks, Alistair.
0: So Terry Pratchett obviously knows some chemistry. And he pilled chemistry into a lot of the books, which is nice, I think, because often in science fiction and fantasy, there are nods to physics and there are nods to biology quite often. But often chemistry gets overlooked. And I always liked the fact, appreciated the fact that Terry Pratchett was there as like chucking bits of chemistry into his books. Um, yeah, Um Because right back in Equal Rights, the witches are set up as chemists.
1: Oh, yeah, because there's that witch that Granny visits, who's like the sort of proto-Nanny Og, who's the sort of potion maker and chemist.
0: Yeah, but also Granny herself is shown kind of distilling things and making mixtures. I mean, there's a bit uh to what you know where they go to Ang pork and Grand. they talk there's a whole bit about Granny sort of sourcing glassware and being very pleased that she can get hold of glassware that she can't normally yeah. get. And you know she's she's making these mixtures and sort of distilling things and purifying things and making these medicines and potions. So you know I really like that. And then the other thing that I remembered was there is a great bit in men at arms. Which is set in the alchemists guild. Oh yeah. Where they walk in and they're all standing around a billiards table. Yes. And the balls like hit each other and explode, right? And every, you know, much fun is how does everyone sort of ducks and the balls kind of careen around the table. But thing is that is a true bit of chemistry history, which was, you know, the original billiard balls were made of ivory. Ivory was expensive. There was this issue where it was became very difficult to import for a while. Obviously, later on as well, very problematic to be making for anything out of ivory. So, uh, one of these companies kind of went, well, okay, let's uh, let's launch a competition to come up with a new material. And they came up with celluloid. Uh, it was John John Hire who came up with celluloid. But the trouble with celluloid is it's flammable. And yes. if you <laughs> if the balls <laughs> hit each other hard enough. I mean, explode is maybe a little, I mean, you know, it was more of a yeah. pop, I think, uh, but they, <laughs> they, you know, they would bang into each other and catch fire. <laughs> you know, it's not ideal in a game of billiards. And so we, you know, we're literally seeing that in that, in that scene. And I always just love that. Cause if you, if you're a chemist, you would know that, you know, you know, that story and you're like, Oh, that's so cool. And I think as well, there are bits where they talk about troll drinks and things. Mm. Uh, and often kind of there's sort of nods to, oh, you need a bit of nitrate and you need a bit of this and you need a bit of that. And you sort of think, well, that kind of, it it makes a certain amount of sense. Mm. So I think to answer Alistair's question, (laughs) (laughs) broadly, yes, I think yes.
1: Yes, yes, it does run differently or yes, it's the same.
0: Oh no, sorry. Yes, it's the same. I think, I think chemistry on the disc world is broadly the same as chemistry
1: on earth uh, round world. does seem that way. Although I'd be interested because if you went down to the sort of atomic level, it's clearly not the same because they don't have the same elements and they don't have the same, you know, the matter doesn't quite work the same because of the magical field and stuff. So it's, I, I like that on the surface, and I think this is true of so many things in Discord, on the surface, it's very familiar but once you dig down to figure out how it works, suddenly it gets all weird. <laughs> and uh-huh. I really, I like that, that, you know, yes, all of the chemistry works the same, but the chemists can't figure it out fully. And maybe this is why they're always blowing themselves up <laughs> because the underlying rules don't quite work the same way. Yeah. Even though they can mix things to get the same results.
0: There's an extra bit.
1: There's something else going on. It's not electrochemical bonding. It's some weird narrativium based thing. Um, yes. If that happens in the books, as as we were <laughs> discussing before.
0: Another fun bit I found was, um, I'd forgotten about this, Apparently, you know, there's the idea of the thorn. I found this one quote, which was like, so the thorn is the unit of magic and it's the amount of magic needed to create one white pigeon or three billion balls.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I love good. that. Yeah, it's both the unit of magic and the fundamental particle of magic. Yes. At the same yes. time. Makes yeah. sense. Makes sense. It's kind of like in D&D, they, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, clearly a big influence yeah. on Pratchett. They use l- levels to mean about eight different things <laughs> in the rules. <laughs> they have to explain. In the early books, they're all like, now we use level and we're going to explain. It's very condescending, <laughs> frankly. But anyway, um, great, great answer. Thank you. I absolutely have no idea
2: of chemistry and I actually only go up to about a year 10 equivalent of chemistry at school so I had nothing to contribute for this one so I very much appreciate having someone who knows sharing their thoughts
1: yeah fun fact I wanted to do physics chemistry and biology for the HSC and they actually told me that that there was no rule against it but all the teachers said no don't do that you only do true that is that is rude is what that was they taught me out of it yeah I did biology
2: and physics so I mean but I didn't want to do chemistry because I was terrible at it
1: well that's what I did chemistry and physics but I wanted to also do biology. And they said, no, you do chemistry and biology or you do chemistry and physics? I mean. We <laughs> always do chemistry, which will please you, I'm sure, and all of the chemists out there.
2: Um, but, I mean, I think that brings us to the next question, which appropriately is nice and sciencey, again. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, the next question is, what Discworld science would you like to have in our world and why? And this one comes from, and I'm going to guess, Wilcurin.
1: I'm so sorry. I'm reading your handle I, wrong. Instagram handles are a weird, weird country. <laughs> but yes, I'm going to have a guess. here, Liz, because we have had a question from Ryan Walker before, and I think this is Ryan. I mean, Walker. that
2: is all the consonants, isn't it? But the other <laughs> way around.
1: Yeah. So I hope, hopefully, that's right. I haven't made a horrible or a mistake. beautiful
2: coincidence. And we're just like it's a great fantasy name. Also, like so. Either way,
1: I'm. I think it's good. It is. But what Discord signs would we like to have in our world? I don't know, it's I mean, I would love to have Igor's in our world. I think their medical science is far in advance of anything we've got, you know, like they can do miracles. I think that'd be cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'd be my number yes. one. I mean, you'd sort of like to get Granny's headology yes. into into, you know, I mean you wouldn't need a therapist, would you, if you had Granny around because she could just no. sort of poke around in your head and and sort out <laughs>
1: You only need that. one visit, really, with the weather wax as yeah, well. You don't have yeah. to keep going and every month to that, do the work yourself. So, she just sorts you out.
0: <laughs> so that, that she could, I think she has a lot to contribute to that field, definitely. Yeah, uh, that's great. I mean, there's probably some fun stuff in Pyramids that you could, it's, you know, what? it's a while since I've read Pyramids, so I might be um, yeah. reaching there. I
1: quite like, uh, I mean, any of Leonard Quirms' uh, inventions, <laughs> a lot of those <laughs> would be... Uh, I mean some of them we do have already, but I I'm sure he would if he'd started where we are now, he'd invent some amazing things. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I, I always think I would like to understand troll physiology.
1: Mm. Right. So presumably
0: yeah. presumably there's a troll doctor somewhere. There must be. Must they be. have chiul- they be. have children, right? They must Yeah. They, they they do you know, so so there must be I mean, unfortunately sadly Terry didn't get to explore this any further, but I feel like he was getting a bit more into troll society when he in the later watchbooks. And yeah. you know, you know, it is a whole different life form, right? Silicon-based mm. life form, and it and it would be quite interesting to sort of poke around in that and and think about how how does that work? How do they give birth?
1: Yeah. How yeah, does it and I mean, he's is lava involved? Right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. Ooh, who knows? <laughs> is, is, uh,
0: yeah, how does that happen? I was, yeah. I mean,
1: in, in Troll Bridge, there's that joke about, you know, the, the kid being a chip off the old block. And I'm like, <laughs> is that how they reproduce? Do they literally yeah. like chip off a bit of troll and it grows into a new troll? But, um, the, I mean, the, he's, he had Ian and Jack right there who had written a whole book about what alien life might be like.
0: Mm. So,
1: um, yeah, I think that could have been fascinating. I would have loved that. Now Liz, I can see you've got an answer for this. What Discord science would you want?
2: I mean, I was going to say Igor medicine, uh, and then my backup oh. was um Leonard Quorum. So uh, well let's just see how we go <laughs> with this one. But um I think what I would like is their ability to make a round world in their disc world. I'd like in our round world to be able to make a disc world that can in turn make a round and just go around <sighs> and around and around in cycles so that we can just study it. That's <laughs>
1: That's oh, that's <laughs> doing my head in. That's like as above, so below. But then you yep. know, we're ipso facto. Yeah. Oh, but it'd yep. be cool. You could go and visit. Would the it be course. cool,
2: or is cool. Like maybe it is happening, and we're just not involved.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. I mean, why would they come and? I visit mean, we us? do have
2: this podcast. I think um, that we'd be ripe for telling about that project, especially now that we've made this statement. So, if you're if you've made a disc oh. world in your university, please um, drop us a message. <laughs>
1: Well, Now I'm I'm just wondering, like, what if the Wizards go into Round World and they find, like, Terry (laughs) (laughs) Pratchett? He's writing about the Discord. He's writing about them. But because it's not quite our world, it's obviously slightly different because of the crab civilization and everything. It's not quite our Mm. Discord either.
2: So it's just going to get weirder and weirder and smaller and smaller or bigger and bigger. We don't know which way it's going.
1: Yeah. All right. That's cool. Um, Just before we move on to uh, one last question, I will say – Ryan, I'm hoping that I'm guessing your name right. You also asked, what's the best place to submit a question? Any of the ways that, <laughs> that they can get to us is fine. Social media, we check all of their social medias. Um, or you can email us, at chat at pratchatpodcast.com. We like it when you put them on social media, though, because sometimes other people chime in with cool answers. So, uh, yeah, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter are all fine. Uh, but let's end up with uh, these questions from Belle. All
2: right. I'll ask both of them. So, the first one is, who is your favourite scientist? And the second one is, which scientific discipline are you most interested in exploring further? All right, so let's do the first one. Um, who is your favourite scientist?
1: Oh, that's a hard one to answer, isn't it? Do you have one, though? Do you have any?
0: Well, I mean, I've already mentioned Elizabeth Fulheim, haven't I? I just, I, just do, I just love that introduction. Pretty good. It's really difficult to pull out individuals because I think it comes back to this idea that just keeps coming back in the book, which is that you know it's never down to one person yeah no discovery is ever one person it's always based on lots and lots of prior work and they're just the final piece in the puzzle and so it sort of feels unfair to pick a favorite scientist because you sort of think well there was probably a hundred people behind them who did all the actual work they're yeah, just the
1: name, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I, I have a similar problem. I'm Also, I know a lot of great scientists personally, <laughs> and uh, I feel like if I didn't pick one of them, I'd be in a lot of trouble. Um, but they're all great. Um, Tree, I don't know if you listen to this podcast, but shout out to you. You're still one of my faves. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's heaps of them. Liz, I can see from the look on your face, this is also not easy for you. Why? Why is it hard for you? <laughs>
2: because there are so many scientists who I admire whose names I forget much to my distress. But um, one that always comes up for me is William of Ockham. So the guy from Ockham's Razor. I've done talks about him in the past. So a lot of my knowledge has sort of gone onto the page and into the into the talks. And then now I cannot draw upon any of that, but I'm pretty sure he got excommunicated at some point. And I mean, I did do a a joke about how Occam's razor does literally exist because he would have had to shave at some point. Though I do think he had a magnificent beard, but anyway, favorite scientist, if we're going to name just one off the top of my head, let's say William of Occam.
1: Yeah. That talk was recorded, wasn't it? Yeah. Was that for the Labor Story?
2: It was. Um, so if you do do a bit of a deep dive on the internet, you will probably find that talk. Um,
1: leave it to you to see if you want to listen to it. Or, or, or maybe I will link it mm-hmm. in the episode notes because you've just reminded me, I've also done talks for Labor Story, which was a live event in Melbourne where people would talk about one of their favorite scientists. And I've done it like three times about Hedy Lamarr, uh, Mary Anning, and uh, Veronica Megler, who was a pioneer in early video games. Three answers, and I didn't mention any of those people, so it- I will have to link to my episodes of that too. because to they've had cool.
2: their time, though. You've already highlighted them. It's time to highlight some others.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was uh, a- uh, Great event. Yeah. Really good. Now, what about Bell's second question? Is there a scientific discipline we'd like to explore?
2: hard one to answer again. I feel like I'm saying that for all of them, but I think if I had to pick, I'd choose computer science purely because I nearly did that at university. Like I was enrolled. I was going to be doing a law computer science double degree. I went to the orientation and everything. And it's kind of like an alternate life that just opened up in front of me and then closed when I decided. The other trouser leg. Yeah, it's the other trouser leg. So I feel like (laughs) if I went into that, it would give me a bit of insight into where I might be had I followed that path. So Got lock in computer science. Hmm.
1: And I did study computer science. Ooh. And I regretted it. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true. I didn't really regret it, but I didn't finish the degree.
2: Neither did I. I didn't finish my degree either. So maybe <laughs> if we'd, we'd been swapped around like a real sliding. It's not a so real sliding doors where you swap things. Freaky Friday. I think that's what we're looking at.
1: Freaky Friday. Mm. Freaky University yeah. Friday. Freaky several Fridays. Sinister semester. Oh. Uh.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh,
1: yeah. I would watch that movie. <laughs> uh, d- d- disastrous degree. No, that just sounds like a reality. Double feature.
2: degree. No way. That's a real thing.
1: Okay. No, I tried that. It didn't mm. work. But let's get off that topic. Kat, you've been a scientist, but is there a science that you're interested in exploring further? Now, obviously, you, your background is in chemistry. If you could do, and I mean, let's make this pie in the sky. If you could just learn another science- and, you know, commerce wasn't a problem, time wasn't a problem, (laughs) you just study whatever you wanted to learn about it, what would you go with that you don't already know, or or that you would like to learn a lot more about?
0: You know, I think I would really like to study psychology. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, um, there might be some people that are sort of wincing at that answer, but I, I just think that people are so fascinating, and how the human mind works is so fascinating. And I didn't have that option at school. I know some schools now do offer A level psychology and possibly even GCSE psychology but it, you know when I was at school that just wasn't there. Hmm. So um I just think that's really interesting. I think there's there's so much there to look at of kind of how humans think, how we process the world, why we see things the way we do, what are our inherent biases that we just cannot get away from. There's just so many interesting aspects to it. Hmm. You know, hmm. it, it's just a very interesting field and one that's very changeable. And as well, I always feel like as soon as, as soon as I start digging around in any one particular story, there's always somebody that pops up and goes, you know, actually, you know how everybody thinks that that experiment was about that? It wasn't about that. Yeah, And actually yeah, it yeah. showed the exact opposite
1: of what everyone thinks it showed. Those those early psychology, the big ones like the Stanford Prison Experiment, all that kind of stuff, like the Milgram Experiment, I was like, no, (laughs) that's that's not what it was about at all. Yeah, it is fascinating. I studied a little bit of that when I did a little bit of um, the history and philosophy of science, which went into Mm. some of that stuff. And it's, yeah, and I think that's what, that like it's not really a scientific discipline, but I think that's what I would do more of. Like I got a little taste of it, and Mm. I think that's why I ended up doing science comedy. Mm. And I would do, it's not really a scientific discipline, but I think I would be interested in studying more or going back to study science itself, like the process mm. of it, how it works, how we think about it. And really these days, you know, and this kind of couples up with psychology, how do you communicate it to a people in a way that they understand and appreciate? Because we mm. have a real, we still have a real problem with that. It's a real difficulty. So yeah, I think that would be my answer. But look, that pretty much brings us to the end. Kat, thank you so much. Thank for- you being a guest on the podcast before you go if people want to find out more about what you're up to where can they find out more about what you're doing um and hear more about your work
0: best place to find me is on twitter at chronicle flask uh where i live <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun place uh, yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. You will find me there talking nonsense most days. So that's probably the quickest place to track me down. The other place I'm going to send people is pseudopod. You can hear me hosting episodes. Uh, there's an episode up right now that I narrated, which is called Renaissance by Pauline Yates. Uh, It's a great story. It's a story about organ farmers, but it kind of, it kind of gets into this idea of if somebody has your organs, do you have a connection with that person? Mm-hmm. And it's a really great story. You know, we have so many great stories. And the thing mm-hmm. that I think sets Pseudopod apart is that we have this hosting thing. And mostly of the time, it's it's Alistair that does the hosting. But it's always a really interesting reflection on the depths in the story. And when we go through the stories, when we're reading stories to choose to put on the podcast, we are always looking for that. So obviously it has to be a good story on the surface. Mm. It has to work as a narrative. But then also we are always looking for the undercurrents underneath it. You know, what is this really talking about? Or what are the kind of ideas that are underneath this?
1: if there was one episode of pseudopod that you think Pratchett fans would really be into, is there one you would recommend? Hang on. Give me a sec. doesn't have to be the perfect one. Just a one as an entry point. Got it. I've got it. I've got it. Right.
0: Right. Pseudopod episode that I think Pratchett fans will probably like is actually the special episode that we did for Alistair Stewart's 15th anniversary hosting the show. And it's Mm. called Celestial Shores. And it's by two people, Sarah Day and Tim Pratt. And the reason I'm going to pick it is because it's a little bit lighthearted, but also it has a bit of cosmic horror. And Terry Pratchett was, you know, he liked to throw in his cosmic horror, didn't he? He had had quite a lot of Lovecraft references.
1: Loves those things from the dungeon dimensions. (laughs) That's
0: right. Things from the dungeon dimensions, tentacles, slimy things, that sort of stuff. And I, so I think that would probably work. And also it's a fun episode and it's got all, lots of nice things about Alistair in it as well. So that would be a good episode to go and have wow. a listen to. Another episode from the escape artists team that I remember that I thought Project fans would particularly like is from cast of wonders. It's episode four hundred and seven. let the buyer beware. And uh, it's a lovely, funny story, but also has some, uh, well, it has quite a lot of tentacles So uh, I thought people would appreciate
1: that. All right. That sounds great. And if people want to find Pseudopod, we'll put a link in the episode notes, but where do they find more about Pseudopod?
0: pseudopod Pseudopod.org. That's the website. And then Pseudopod underscore org on Twitter.
1: Right. Yeah. Pseudopod underscore org. Great. Great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you once again so much, Kat. It's been a pleasure having you.
2: Yes. It has been. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kat.
1: And of course, thank you, listener, for being on this ride with us. You've been here. We, I mean, you've listened to us do this. Liz, can you believe this? More than sixty times.
2: That is ridiculous. That is so many times. That is definitely
1: more than three. Yeah. I mean, I'm making a big assumption there, listening. This could be your very first episode <laughs> of Pratchett. Be a weird one to choose, mm-hmm. seeing as it's the third book in, the, in that rare thing—a series of books that kind of do follow each other. But, yeah, okay. yeah, it could happen. But but because it's nearly 60, well, it's over 60, including prime mm. episodes, but because the next episode is our 60th, it's a bit of a special one, isn't it, Liz?
2: Yeah, it's one of the, like, it, we've done this once before, and I'm very excited to be doing it again. I mean, I'm building it up. What, what
1: are we doing? <laughs> it's just all questions. It's all <laughs> your questions. We're not reading a book. We're just answering and talking about whatever you want us to talk about. So, please send us your questions. If you've got questions for books and you missed the episode where we discussed that book, Mm. send it in now. If you want to ask questions about the Discord series as a whole or Pratchett's work as a whole or making this podcast, yeah, send those in. Kat, actually, while you're here, do you have a question you want us to answer for our 60th episode?
0: Yes, I do. What would you like to see in the sense of television adaptations and film adaptations? Mm. Which books would you like to see? Uh, adapted. How would you like to see it approached? Would you like to see books done as kind of multi series television shows?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Would you like individual movies? How would you, how do you see that working and coming together?
1: Well, that's a good oh, one. That's great. I think we've kind of touched on that a couple of times a little bit. I think it'd be fun to go into that depth. That's a great question. Thank you so much. We'll definitely talk about that next episode. And listen, if you've got a question for us, get it in now. <laughs>
2: and if you have a discord theory that you want us to discuss we'd love to hear that too like anything small large like any theories, I love hearing them.
1: Mm. But we also, we said we'd ask some questions for you to answer because we want to discuss your mm-hmm. answers on episode 60. Liz, you had a great one last time.
2: Yeah, so we'd love to hear, like, what do you like about what we're doing? Like, what are we doing well and what are we not doing well so we can improve? Like, love to learn. Mm. So
1: Yeah, is is there a kind of episode that we're not doing that you wish mm. we'd do? And we've talked about doing all kinds of stuff, like whether we should do episodes about authors you might like, if you like Pratchett. Diana Wynne Jones. <coughs> yeah, well, look, Jasper I mean, Ford. the Diana Wynne Jones cast, and Jasper <laughs> Ford podcast is probably yeah. coming, but no, look, there are a lot of ways we could continue doing this, but we haven't decided on one yet. But yes, that is if it will happen, who knows? But tell us, tell us what you think. Uh, what would you like us to do? I would also love to know what do you, what was like our opinion that you disagreed mm. with the most? <laughs> like we have a lot of opinions and maybe not just us, maybe a guest who's on the, on the show. Although please don't be mean to any of our wonderful guests. And you know conversely you what is the constructive the- debate yeah <laughs> what is the opinion that you agreed with the most or something that was most surprising and uh or and what's maybe what's something you learned mm. like uh because of the podcast whether that's something we said or something you looked up because I've learned so many things researching the episode notes mm. for this show uh but that's pratchat 60 so if you want to ask us questions for that that's the open Slather episode any book anything related to the Discworld, anything related to us and the show Go for it. Please answer our questions too. The hashtag to use is PrattChat 60. You can answer those in all the usual places. But also, because we're not doing a book next month, we're going to tell you the book mm. for the episode afterwards. Because it's not just one book, Liz, is it? No, it
2: is two. And it's like, I'm excited about both. There's one I've been joking saying for a really long time, hoping that Ben <laughs> takes it seriously. I'm like, joking, but not joking. So, um, very exciting news. So, the book we're doing is Thud with guest educator Matt Roden. So send us in your questions for that one using the hashtag Pratchat61. And along with that, we're going to be doing Where is my
1: cow? (laughs) Yes. Ooh. And I'm very excited about this because not only are we doing Where's my cow, which, which we almost did for our very first episode, if I remember. I've been pushing for it for a very long time. (laughs) We didn't both have copies at the time, so it didn't work out. But we're very excited because this is going to be a crossover episode (gasps) with our dear friends, Joe and Francine from the Truth Shall Make Ye Fret, one of the many other great Discworld podcasts out there. So that's gonna be fun. So please send in your questions for either Thud or Where's My Cow? The you can use the same hashtag for both of them. That's fine. We'll probably have a different hashtag for the bonus episode. Uh but that's Pratchat61.
2: Are you saying that the questions for Where's My Cow aren't gonna to apply to
1: Thud? <laughs> Well, some of them yeah. will. I mean, it is a book that appears in the other book. All right, please, so, please
2: send in questions that are just, where is my cow? Does anyone know where my cow is? Yeah.
1: Where, wear it. Well, look, as always, thank you so much for listening to the podcast, for telling your friends. Uh, thank you to all our subscribers who make this possible. If you want to become a subscriber, uh, you can do that via the support us page at Uh We're now dropping lots of little bits of bonus content through our subscription platform, Coffee, uh, so you don't have to wait until an episode of our bonus subscriber-only podcast comes out, and that's been a lot of fun to do. Do check that out if you're interested. But regardless, thank you so much, and until next time, please don't write the wrong book. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchett's Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Dr. Cat Day. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with for music by David Ashton of Sample & Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat59. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears like the Doctor Who podcast, Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series, Night Terrors. To find out more, visit splendidchaps.com.